Info at Cox.com. I love how you get great advice from so many different sources here at WAMU 88.5. That was fantastic advice from the rapper Danny Brown when he said, when you live unhealthy, you start to think unhealthy. So we're wishing you a healthy life so you can think healthily, too. Hey, that's it. That's all for me. I'm Jeffrey James, wishing you the week you want to have. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University, NHD at 88.5 at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. It's 7 o'clock. It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and do we have dates to observe tonight? Today's German-American Day. We're in the middle of World Space Week. It's the last night of Oktoberfest, the anniversary of the first sound motion picture, The Jazz Singer, and it's Janet Gaynor's birthday. And if that name doesn't ring a bell, wait till you hear her. We've got Jack Benny doing sci-fi on suspense, really. A prescient patriotic play from World War II by Arch Obler and with an all-star cast. Speaking of patriots, a boyhood biography of Carl Schutz and the aforementioned Janet Gaynor starring with George Brent in a radio adaptation of the hit Broadway play Mrs. Moonlight, plus Dragnet and Gunsmoke. There's a lot to commemorate, so relax, settle back, and don't even think about thinking of anything that might have plagued you last week, last week's over. And there will be plenty of time to worry about next week when it starts for real tomorrow. For now, just listen to a story called The Wayward Money Matter, with its mention of the consumer loan company Beneficial Finance. The show comes from April 13th, 1958, CBS, AFRTS, and yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Fred Norwood, Northeastern Indemnity Association. Oh, hello, Fred. I haven't heard from you since that case down in Managua, Nicaragua. Got another nice long trip lined up for me? I'm afraid not this time. But if you can leave right away, I wish you'd run down to Baltimore for us. Baltimore? Hmm, that depends. Depends on what? How free I can be with my expense account in the seafood department. Chickatee oysters, soft-shell crabs, terrapin soup. Johnny, if you can get us off the hook on this one, I'll okay your expense account blind. Big one, huh? Over 100000 Murder? Arson? $111,421 missing from a safe. Wow, and you're liable for it if it isn't recovered, huh? For the full amount. But who'd keep that much cash in a safe? Outside of a bank, that is. The Trillingham Tobacco Company. But why? Better get the details from August Trillingham. If you'll take this on. On a free winning expense account? Freddy, I'm your boy. Bob Bailey in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Northeastern Indemnity Association, Hartford, Connecticut. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the wayward money matter. Expense account item 12630, plane fare and incidentals, Hartford to New York to Baltimore, and a cab to the Sheraton Belvedere. After all, I could afford the best. Item 2, a 10-cent phone call to Mr. August Trillingham. 
He'd be glad to see me. Hmm. Somewhere that name rang a bell. Item three, a buck twenty for a cab to the Trillingham Tobacco Company on Conway near Charles Street. It was a huge old brick building with what I guess you'd call a vaulted roof. Offices at one end of it, and the rest looked like a kind of warehouse. I'm glad you could get here so quickly, Mr. Dollar. The loss only occurred last night, you know. Well, I left Hartford the minute the insurance company called me. So, somebody blew your safe and walked off with a lot of... the safe, Mr. Dollar, and took over $104,000. Do you always keep that much cash on hand? Yes, yes, because of the nature of our business. What do you mean? Well, the tobacco was grown by the farmers hereabouts. Barn cured for a month or two or three and then brought here. Uh-huh. We graded according to quality and color and tied into hands. Hands? Uh, bunches of 20 or 30 leaves, depending on size. Oh, I see. And then we pack it in hogsheads and ship it to the auction warehouses. We're uh, kind of a middleman between the small farmer and the auction. I said small farmer, Mr. Dollar. Well? There are people for whom tobacco is only an incidental crop. There are a lot of them. Since we buy from them outright, they want cash. Not checks or payment due the first of the month. Oh, no, cash. Oh, I see. And uh, you're always gambling on what you'll be able to get at the auctions. That's right. Ah. How, uh, how's business, Mr. Turningham? Mm, not as good as I'd like, of course, but I'm sure it'll pick up later in the year. Why do you ask? Oh, just wondered. In a matter like this, I want to know all I can. Yes, but you said that as though you meant to imply that... Uh, that oh, perhaps... I, mean, I meant to imply nothing. Look, you said that safe wasn't cracked. I said it was opened. And I'm sure I know by whom. You what? Well, then why send for me? Well, after all, the liability is now your company. Well, who did it? For years, we've had a bookkeeper. A little... Pipsqueak of a man named Elmer Cockerley. Well, if he, he must did have been it. here 15 or 20 years, even before I bought this business. You haven't always owned it? Oh, no, no, no. I, I made my money during the late 20s, Florida real estate. Oh, oh, yes, yes. Seems to me I've heard something about your success down there. I retired, traveled around till the mid 40s, and then decided to get back into the swing of things, and I bought this business. Yes, okay. Now, about this Elmer Cockerley. Oh, a mild, timid, ineffectual sort. Of little man. I suppose after 20 or 30 years of this dull, routine job, after seeing and handling so much money all the time. Yeah, I see what you mean. Well, anyhow, at tax time, uh, I decided to have the accounting firm of Hanley, James, Chadwick, Kermer, and Wormsbecker go over our books just as a matter of course. And? It was then that Elmer Cockerley suddenly discovered. But some of the records were missing. I see. Things balanced out at the end of the year, mind you. But those three or four months were uh, missing. And it was during that period that Elmer had painted his home, bought a new car. Didn't you investigate immediately? Of course. Seems to me it was then that you should have sent for me. Well, since our business is strictly cash, both in and outgoing, there was nothing we could pin on him. What's more, he was as concerned as I was, apparently. After all, since things finally balanced out, but I wonder. Yeah, I should think you would. And now, since he's the only other person who could open the safe... What does he say about this robbery? He uh, didn't come in this morning. I called his wife. She hasn't seen him since he left for work yesterday morning. You know where he lives? Yes. Do you have a description of his car, license, and so on? Yes, yes, I have. Okay, Mr. Trillingham, I'll notify the police from here. Then I'm going out to his house to see what I can learn there. May I use your phone? Of course. 
Yeah, it wouldn't be the first time a timid soul had finally felt his oats, had run off with company money. And usually that type was hard to find. The methodical mind always planned things well, including a getaway. Item four, 80 cents, taxi to a car rental agency. Item five, 50 bucks deposit, and I drove to Elmer Cockerley's home, a few blocks off Wilkins Avenue, west of town. I wondered why the old fellow had done it. Sometimes the why can be the best clue as to where to hunt for a man. And you know something? A good part of the why became very clear when the door of Elmer's house was opened. And now, act two of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Wayward Money Matters. Yes, what do you want? Mrs. Cockerley? I'm Mrs. Cockerley. Who are you? Johnny Dollar, insurance investigator. Insurance investigator? I haven't even filed a claim on Elmer yet. Oh, you think your husband is dead, Mrs. Cockerley? Of course he is. You think for a minute he'd walk out on me? That's why you think he's dead? Ain't that enough? <clears throat> You've talked with Mr. Trillingham this morning. Of course I have. He wanted to know where Elmer was. I wanted to know where Elmer was. Neither of us knowed, so that was that. So when they find his body, I'll collect his insurance and that'll be that. And I won't have that helpless little worm around underfoot no more. No more having a baby and nurse him and tie his tie and feed him. Mrs. Cockerley. Oh, sir. The only reason that little shrimp would dare not to come home is if somebody done him in. And when you find him, you can come around and pay me his insurance, and that's that. Now, if that's all you Just a minute. Talk... Just a minute. Did Mr. Trillingham tell you that over $100,000 was taken for the safe at the office? Uh, no. Elmer didn't do it. I know he didn't. Do you? Working his fingers to the bone year after year. Handling all that money and him and me just scraping along. Why, if it wasn't for beneficial finance helping us along now and then, I don't know what we'd have done. Yeah, well, look. I told him more than once if he wasn't such a spineless little mouse, he'd help himself to some of that money. They'd never miss it, being a cash business like it is, and the Lord knows he deserves some of it. What'd he say to that? Scared him. Made him angry. So I'd keep rubbing it in. great marriage you two had. (laughs) Sometimes he'd scream and yell like a baby. He'd dare to scream at you? I'd let him. I got so sick of him, it did me good to see him blow his top. Believe me, I told him more than once, if I was in his place, I wouldn't hesitate. Well, go ahead, he says. Go ahead. And he give me... Go ahead, he says. He gave you what, Mrs. Cockerley? The combination to the safe? Yes. Yes, he did. So what of it? So maybe I went down there and robbed it last night. Well, how did you know it was last night? I didn't tell you that. All right. All right, maybe I did. I'd like to see you put it on me. Maybe I will. You think I can't use that kind of money? You think I don't deserve it after struggling all these years, caring for him for nothing because he didn't have the gumption to get what he should have? You know something, Mrs. Cockley? I doubt if you ever gave him a chance to show any gumption. <laughs> Do you know Elmer? Did you ever see him? No. And look. Look at his picture here on the hall table. All right. A baby, that's all he is. All right. You've made with a lot of big, noisy talk. Now, just... Probably most of it's a lie. I don't believe you'd live ten minutes with a man if you really felt that way about him. Look, mister... But there must be some reason for it. Some reason for trying to make me suspect you. I told you. Maybe I did do it. Did you? 
I'd like to see you prove it. Well, I don't think you did. I'd like to see you prove that. I think all you're trying to do is cover up for him, protect him. And I'll say this, you're taking a mighty offbeat way to do it. Uh, now listen. Where is he? You really think Elmer, little Elmer, could have... No. No, he really didn't have the gumption. All right, who else? He couldn't have, Mr. Dollar. Outside of his books and figures at that office, he... He could hardly take care of himself. That's why he needed me. To tell him what to do and feed him and take care of him. Well, this is quite a change of pace, Mrs. Cockerley. So maybe I did make him toe the line. So what about it? He liked it. Some people are that way. Just like me. I gotta have somebody I can lord it over him. Anything wrong with that? Well... I don't believe a thing you said. Oh, you don't. Now, where is he? Where is Elmer? I don't know. And if he didn't rob that safe, who did? He couldn't. How should I know? Why don't you ask that August Trillingham, this fancy boss that's kept him and me starving all these years? Did you think of him? Everybody's a suspect at a time like Dear this. Dear August. Including his you. His friend, the boss. Used to go catfishing together up the creek. Great privilege for poor little Elmer to go fishing with the boss who made all the money. That's where I thought he was last night when he didn't come home to supper. When he wasn't home all night, poor dear. All right, Mrs. Cockerley, just quit acting. Act. Somebody stole now, that money, and listen. apparently only three people knew the combination of that safe. Trillingham, your husband, and you. I tell you, go ask that Trillingham. But only one of the three has run out, disappeared. No. No, I'll never believe that Elmer did it. He could. Sure he could. Anybody could. Now, where is he? I don't know. I think you do. No. And you're trying to protect him. Or are you waiting to hear from him so you can join him, him and the money? That isn't true. Then why isn't he here, if half of what you told me is true? Because he... Because Oh, I... go answer the phone. Hello. Yes, I'm her. Who? Oh. Oh, oh, just a minute. Sergeant Macklin, he says. Oh, the man I talked to at police headquarters. Here. Thanks. Johnny Dollar. This is Macklin, Mr. Dollar. Yeah, Mac. Looks like it's all sewed up. Yeah, who? Elmer Cockerley. Driver's license, identification. You found the money? Well, what's left of it. They got the money, did they? You know what Cockerley looks like? I've seen his picture. Well, then maybe you better come out here. Where? Hans's Bridge. Hans's Bridge? Yeah. We used to go catfishing all the time. It's about nine miles up the creek north of town. Okay, I'll see you there. Yeah, I want you to see if you can identify Cockerley's body. Oh, I see. And now, Act Three of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Wayward Money Matter. Without telling Mrs. Cockerley what I'd learned over the phone, I took off in my rental car for the creek north of town for Hans's Bridge. Yeah, this was a crazy case if ever there was one. Elmer Cockerley, bookkeeper for the tobacco company, was the only real suspect in the $104,000 robbery. And where there's only one suspect, I always begin to wonder. But who else was there? His wife? Maybe. She'd done everything she could to confuse me. The owner of the company, Trillingham? Yeah, I thought of him too. Until I got the word from the police that they'd found Elmer Cockerley. Or what was left of him. They'd found the money too. Or what was left of it. What's left of it is right, Dollar. I'm afraid most of that 100000 went floating down the creek when Cockerley and his car rolled over into it. Well, we'll see how much of the dough is still inside when we get the car up on the bank. How do you figure it happens, Sergeant? Well, the old boy was making his getaways, oh. Going too fast when he hit the turn onto the bridge and plop-o into the creek. Hmm. 
Wouldn't there be skid marks, Mac? Well, he wouldn't have to be going very fast. Hmm. Ah, look. Car is up on the bank now. Come on. Yeah. How do you know it's Elmer Cockley inside of it? License number. And one of the boys dove in, brought up his wallet. Well, here she is, Sergeant. High and... Yeah, high and wet. Okay, Les. We'll have a look. Only a few small bills in there. The rest of the dough must be out in Chesapeake Bay by now. All right, boys. Take a look, Dollar. That cockerly in there? Yeah? Yeah, that's Elmer. Do you think he drowned? Uh, yeah, or banged around so hard when the car plunged in that... Look. See the bruises on his face and chest? Mm, yeah. Not pretty. And Mac. Well, that's that. Just one more who tried and didn't get away with it. I wonder when they'll learn that it just did Huh? What's that? A little scrap of paper out of his pocket. Huh? Torn. Only part of it, see? Night. Pants. Cat. Cat. And Mac, look here. You know what? This bruise, this mark on the back of his head. Yeah, he really got banged around. Show me one thing in this car that could leave a mark like this. Well, most anything. Door handle, top of the steering post. No, sir. All the other bruises are on his face, his chest. And there's only one thing I know that leaves a mark like this. Better get the coroner out here before you touch anything. See you later. But look, where are you going? I'll see you later. Now, what under the... Yes, I heard it from the police department, Mr. Dollar, and I... Well, in spite of what I told you earlier, it's hard to believe. Yeah, it is. He'd been such a loyal soul all those years. But I suppose all that cash, and it was a bit more than we usually kept the safe, I suppose it was just too much of a temptation for him. Or for any other man. Huh? Even you, for instance. What? Are you joking? So it's not funny. So, business has been pretty bad lately. I didn't say that, Mr. Dollar. I merely said that... I know what you said, Trillingham. And I remember now what I'd heard about your big success in Florida real estate back in the 20s. Well, I don't see what... You were happened. one of those guys who sold a lot of swamp and jungle, some of it underwater to suckers from up north. I was young, an opportunist in those You were days. a crook. You're a crook now. And a killer. Mr. Dollar. Oh, natural to hang it on. Poor, timid little Elmer Cockerley. Sure, why not? He'd be the natural suspect in anybody's book. Do you realize what you're accusing me of? Let's go fishing. Catfishing. Tonight, at Hans's Bridge. Only you shouldn't have put it into a note to him. What note? The one I found on his body. So you met him there. You slugged him. Put him behind the wheel of his car, then ran it down the embankment into the creek. You thought the rolling over would account for any bruises he'd get. Listen, But you... not that mark on the back of his head, the one made by the butt of a thirty-eight special. I've seen too many of them, Trillingham. Oh, I see. You still have it. That's right. And I'll use it. You didn't get away with murdering Elmer. You'd never get away killing me. I can go a long ways on $100,000. And before I let you stop me... Uh, huh? Mr. Dollar, the police told me poor Elmer has... Close that <gasps> door. You... You did it. Quiet. I don't know how, but you killed him. Quiet. And close that. Oh, I'll do it myself. Oh, Buster. Uh, yeah, he did it, Mrs. Conkley. And believe me, he'll pay for it. Mm -hmm.
begins another dirty chapter in the history of crime. I hope the insurance on Elmer makes up in some small way for Mrs. Cockerley's loss of her... Well, I was going to say husband, but... I guess Elmer was kind of a baby to her. To manage, to browbeat, and to love. Expense account total, including transportation back to Hartford, $104.70. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Here is our star to tell you about next week's story. Next week, a fishing trip to Lake Mojave Resort. Fishing, that is, for a thief. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, originates in Hollywood and is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone, who also wrote today's story. Heard in our cast were Virginia Gregg, Edgar Barrier, Alan Reed, Vic Perrin, and Frank Nelson. Be sure to join us next week, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Dan Coverly speaking. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, and the Wayward Money Matter from April of 1958 and from the big broadcast here on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. It wasn't radio, but it had nearly as big an impact on American culture, and it coincided roughly with the beginnings of big-time network radio. It was called The Jazz Singer, and it was the first feature-length movie to feature spoken dialogue and singing. And it was released on this date, October 6th, in 1927. The Jazz Singer was originally a story by Samson Raphaelson. He turned it into a play, and Hollywood has filmed it several times over the years. It was inevitable that radio should give it a try, and indeed, Lux Radio Theater produced it a couple of times. Here's an excerpt from the first of those two productions. It aired less than a decade after the movie premiere... And it features the film's star, Al Jolson. The story's about a young man from a long line of Orthodox Jewish cantors who runs away from home to pursue his dream of being, that's right, a jazz singer. From August 10th, 1936, and CBS, here's an excerpt of The Jazz Singer, featuring Al Jolson, Tamara Shane, Bill Johnstone, and Ludwig Donath from Lux Radio Theater. Take a telegram, will you? To Mrs. Joseph Rabinovich, 121 Orchard Street, New York City. 121 Orchard Street, New York City. Dear Mama, I'm coming home tomorrow. Please. Come in. Hello, Mrs. Rabinovich. Oh, Mr. Yudelson. Congratulations, Mrs. Rabinovich. Good luck. For what? For what? For the cantor's birthday. <laughs> My husband has a birthday and I should get congratulations. The greatest cantor of all time, Mr. Rabinovich. 
Uh, did you hear what the Gershons are giving him? The Gershons? You remember all the pictures which are hanging in the committee room at the synagogue? The Kenta's father and grandfather for four generations? Yes. Well, the Gershons made a hand painting from all the pictures. No, a hand painting. With a fancy sign. The sign is saying five generations of great Kenta's. And five the fifth is the best. Five generations of great Kenta's. It will make him think of Jakey. Jakey? Yeah, I had not thought. Even now I'm afraid to speak to the Cantor about Jakey. Once I say to him, you know, Jakey would have made a great Cantor. He had a beautiful voice. That made him angry. He says, never mention his name to me. Oh, he's lonely for him, Mr. Yudelson. He don't say so, but I know. Tell me, why, why did Jakey run away? Why did he do it? Why? Because he didn't want to be a cantor. Because he didn't want to sing in the synagogue. Who knows, Mrs. Rabinovitz? Someday, maybe he will come back. Someday, maybe. Jakey, I can't believe it. Mama, please, don't cry, Mama. I'm home. Only yesterday it was. Yesterday. Mr. Yudelson said, maybe someday he will come back. Like a miracle, Jakey. My boy, my boy. Well, didn't you get my telegram? Telegram? Telegram. But I didn't open. I thought it was congratulations. Papa's birthday. Papa's birthday. He's... He's at the synagogue? Where else, Jakey? How is he? How does he feel? Jakey, he's an old man. You will live here with us, no? Oh, no, no, I'd love to, Mama, but you see, I wired for a room at the hotel. Oh, don't be fooled. Hey, wait a minute, what are you doing? I want to put the grip in your room. I put everything so you will know where they are. If you put them away, Mama, I won't know where anything is. Well, I want to see what you got. All right, I'll open the bag and show you. Oh, an expensive bag, Mama. That's what you call genuine pigskin. Pigskin? <gasps> pigskin you should bring in this house. <laughs> Mama, Mama, you're wonderful. Well, it's open. Take a look. Come on. Jakey, right there on top is a picture. A picture from you. Now, what would I want with my picture? Who else? A girl, Mama. A girl who did some wonderful things for me. Look, how do you like those mm, neckties? Such Aren't they a beautiful girl. She lives in that house from yeah, the Yeah, yeah, yeah. She lives there in the summertime. Look at my pajamas and my shirt. a big house, Jakey, for only one girl. She's got uh, a husband. No, you? not yet, Mama. These shirts, French cuffs. Only Aren't they a pr- big house and a dog she's got? What does she do all day in such a house? She was born there, Mama. Then she came to New York and studied for the opera. But if a girl doesn't weigh more than 200 pounds, they don't want her. So now she's a big star on Broadway. Ain't that a shame? Such a nice-looking girl, too. Oh, Mama, look. I've got a surprise for you. Something you wanted all your life. Take a peek at this. Look. Jakey. Diamonds with stones in it. Sure. It's what you call a diamond brooch. Real diamond? Uh Uh-huh. Jakey. Where did you get so much money? Oh, don't worry, Mama. And I got lots more where that came from. You don't do something wrong. Oh, no, Mama. Of course not. Well, let's take a little look around. Same old apartment. Yep. Just the way I always remembered it. Everything spick and span. Mama. Didn't there used to be a picture of me over there? Uh, yes, Jakey. Um, we don't have it no more. It, uh, uh, you see, it fell down and got broke. Sure, sure, I know. We got a new piano, Jakey. It's in the front room. Come. A piano? What kind, Mama? Grand or an upright? Who knows? We pay every month. You got an upright. <laughs> Come on, Mama. Show it to me. You still practice on the fiddle, Jakey? No, no, more. I got too busy. Oh, boy, that's some piano. That's all right. 
You mind if I try it? Oh, good tone, Mama. Good tone. Sit down and I'll sing you something. I'm sitting on top of the world. I'm rolling along. Rolling along. And I'm quitting the blue of the world. I'm singing a song. Singing a song. Glory, hallelujah. Hey, Pa, get ready to fall Just like Humpty Dumpty I'm going to fall I'm sitting on top of the world I'm rolling along Rolling along Don't want any million I'm getting my share I've only got one suit Just one That's all I can wear A bundle of money Don't make me feel good a sweet little honey is making me sad. I'm sitting, sitting on top, top of the world. I'm rolling along, rolling along. And I'm quitting the blue of the world. I'm singing a song, yes, singing a song. Glory, hallelujah, just hold the parson. Hey, Paul, get ready to call. Just like Humpty Dumpty, I'm going to fall. And I'm sitting, sitting on top, top of the world. I'm rolling along, rolling along. Well, that wasn't so bad, was it? Hey, Mama, what's the matter? Gee, Keith, you shouldn't sing like that. It's wrong. Wrong? Why? Why is it wrong? Look, I'll sing you another one. Maybe you'll like this one better, huh? Blue sky, smiling at me. Nothing but blue sky. Never. Uh, usually I, uh, um... Hello, Papa. What are you doing in this house? What am I doing? Why, I came home, I... He said, hello, Papa. He's your son. Why did you come? I came home because I wanted to see you and Mama. I've been away so long. For all this time you didn't need us, you don't need us now. You come into my house, you sit down by my piano, and you sing your cheap songs from the sidewalks. Usually I wanted that you should play the new piano. Now, wait a minute, Mama. I don't think you know how I feel, Papa. I thought about you a thousand times while, while I've been away, and I didn't mean any harm when I played the piano. I just want to sing Mama a little jazz song. Jazz? A song of prayer wouldn't come into your head. Even when you were a little boy, I taught you to sing to please God. But you sang to please yourself, sang in the streets. And you're the same now. You're right, Papa. You taught me to sing prayers, and I sang them here for you. But when I got out on the street with the other kids, I found myself singing the same songs they sang. And they're very much alike, our songs and the street songs. Alike? Yeah. Sometimes when I'm on the stage and I'm singing a song, it seems just like one of our prayers. On the stage? You're in the theater. I'm an actor, Papa. Jack Robin. That's how I'm billed. An actor. After all my prayers that you should be a candidate. Wait a minute. What's so wrong with being an actor? I meet nice people. I make good money. Ah, money, money. Big pockets make money, too. Usually, please. What kind of acting are you doing? Oh, come on, Papa. Let's not go into that. Let's celebrate your birthday. I and later, what I'll kind of acting are you doing? I sing just like you sing. 
Only I sing in a theater. What kind of singing? Jazz songs, Papa. Popular songs. Well, right now, I'm with a show called Broadway Parade. I'm going to open in about a week. Huh? You'll be proud of me. You'll see, Daddy. A I... jazz singer. Does it mean nothing that Rabinovich is the name of great candles? Does it mean nothing that there is a God? Oh, you, you are no son of mine. Get out. Get out, do you? Gigi. Gigi, tell him your song. <laughs> tell him you're ashamed. Ashamed, Mama. Ashamed because I worked like a slave to get a break? Did I come home broke? Did I ask him for anything? I came home because I... Well, I... I thought you'd be glad to see me. Yosley. I'm all right. The doctor told you, Yosley. No excitement. I'm all right. Jakey, my son, tell him. Tell him you're sorry. Of course I'm sorry. About the jazz singing, Jakey. Mama, it's all I've got. It's all I am. I've got a life to live, and I've got to live it my own way. I was away a long time, and I can stay away longer. Oh, Jakey! Jakey! Oh. Let him go, Sarah. Let him go. Al Jolson, recreating his film role as Jack Robin, or... Jakey Rabinowitz in the 1936 Lux Radio Theater version of The Jazz Singer. The movie that really ushered in the era of sound motion pictures opened right at the conclusion of the Yom Kippur holiday in 1927, 92 years ago, tonight. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Usually, when we play stories from the series Suspense, with its spooky opening music... We do it later in the evening. Around this time, we generally play a comedy, Fred Allen or Our Miss Brooks or Jack Benny. Well, tonight, we're going to give in to both impulses with a suspense episode starring, yep, Jack Benny. It's suspenseful, all right, and it's a comedy. And it helps us honor World Space Week, which began day before yesterday and comprises two October anniversaries, the launch of the first man-made satellite, Sputnik, in 1957, and the signing of the International Space Treaty ten years later. But that was all in the future when this program aired on February 2nd, 1953. It's called Plan X. It stars Jack Benny, and it comes from CBS and Suspense. Autolite and its 98,000 dealers bring you Mr. Jack Benny in tonight's presentation of Suspense. Tonight, Autolite, following a popular trend, anticipates the strange disappearance of experimental rocket ship Y-272B. The time, the year 2053. The place, the planet Mars. The star, Mr. Jack Benny. And now, Autolite presents transcribed Plan X, starring Mr. Jack Benny, hoping once again to keep you in suspense. The card. Do you have the card yet? Uh, one more run through the machine. Torig... When do you think the Earth rocket is arriving? Tomorrow. But if the Grand Council wanted the card before now, they should have asked me before now. 
Is that it? Let me see it. Mm, here. One, three, seven, five, six. Zeno. Assembly line worker. Atomic escalator factory. Mm. Torrid, this is the man for the job? He has the specifications called for. An assembly line worker. Why, it's incredible. Incredible. Yes? Yes? Right away. You may go in now, Zeno. The Grand Council is ready for you. One, three, seven, five, six, called Zeno. Come forward. Yes, sir. Zeno, the Grand Council of Mars has a mission for you to perform. Me? A mission? You have been selected because of the qualities shown on your work and identity card, Form 42-A. Set habit patterns, attention to detail, no strong emotional or biological drives, and complete suppression of imagination. Well, I always pride myself Do not that speak I... unless questioned, Zeno. The Grand Council has other important matters of state. Of course, of course. You have heard the telephone broadcast that an armed rocket from the planet Earth is approaching Mars. Hmm? Oh, oh, I did hear something about it, yes. Their course has been plotted as bringing them to a landing on the plane outside the city at 10.14 tomorrow morning. 10.14. You know, I wouldn't mind seeing that. You will see it, Citizen Zeno. Me? You. Well, I'd certainly like to, but I'm due in the atomic escalator factory at 8.00. I'm on stair treads, you know. And we've uh, arranged a leave from your job. Leave? Well, I'm not arguing with the Grand Council, but I've got a pretty important job there, and uh, one three seven five six. You've been selected to meet and deal with the Earth rocket. Me? You will put Plan X into operation. Plan X? Citizen Zeno, every Martian for the last fifty years has been thoroughly grounded in Plan X. If and when a rocket should come from the Earth. Oh. oh. Oh, Plan X. Oh, you see, I thought you said Plan X. Of course. Then you understand and accept the responsibility. Oh, anything to help out. Those assisting you on the mission will be in contact with you. Good, good. Have the other council members any questions? Uh, no, I, I don't believe so. One, three, seven, five, six, called Zeno. You are now officially operating under the provisions of... Plan X. Well, thank you. I took the aerial transmission belt directly home. Let them get along without me at the escalator factory if they could. Besides, it was almost quitting time. I went to bed early that night. Uh, tomorrow was going to be a big day. Plan X. Out of the whole population of Mars, I was picked to carry out Plan X. Oh, I'll admit I had my criticisms of the Grand Council in the past, but this restored my confidence in them. Yes, sir. They couldn't have picked a better Martian. I think I'll have a second cup of ostrich, Mother. Zeno, you haven't time. You'll be late for the factory as it is. 
As I told you, Mother, I'm on leave. Orders of the Grand Council. Oh, yes, of course. Plan X. But will the Grand Council care if you don't get your job back? There won't be any trouble. They couldn't replace me in stair treads, and they know it. Pass the Gorot, will you, Mother? Here. But it's fattening, Zeno. And I got a hard task coming up, Mother. I owe it to myself. And you will be careful, Zeno. Oh, Mother, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. It's just an invasion rocket from that stupid planet Earth. So will you stop worrying? Ah, you're just like your father was, Zeno. Too brave for your own good. I am? Well, it's nothing, really. I took my time going over to the field where the Earth rocket was to land. I got there at ten, with not another soul around. Another few minutes, and I had my pocket radar screen working. Yep, the rocket was coming in, right on time. Then I could hear it out in space, and soon after that I could see it. Bearing our first visitors from Earth. Gee, I was thinking they must be a brave crew. I almost felt sorry for them. It wasn't a bad landing. Not the greatest, but not bad. After another ten minutes, a port in the side of the rocket started to swing open, and I walked over. If I do say it myself, I made quite an impression. Commander. Commander, look. Great Scott, what is it? Commander, I... I think we've met our first Martian. All right, keep back, everybody. Dr. Fielding and I will deal with it. Him, whatever it is. Hand me the Martian kit, Parker. All ready, sir. Come on, Fielding. We'll be ready for anything. Right, Commander. Oh, incredible. Absolutely incredible. I'll try to talk to him. We, Earth people, we, friends, friends, we come from out there. feeling I feel like a fool. Uh, uh, let me try, Commander. <clears throat> we bring you presents. Here. We bring you beads. Cloths of many colors. Take them. You wouldn't have something a little more conservative? Fielding. He speaks Esperanto. Incredible. Incredible. Gentlemen, welcome to Mars. It's, it's almost as if he was expecting us. Oh, yes, for some days now. Ever since you left Earth, as a matter of fact. You hear that feeling? Commander, we may very well be in the presence of a superior race. Well, thank you. You, you say you expected us? Everyone expected us? Oh, certainly. But you're here alone. Yes. Well, unfortunately, all other adult Martians are, shall we say, unavailable. For how long? Not wishing to pry, but how long are you staying? Well... They've taken to the hills, have they? No need to be afraid of us. No need at all. There's uh, no one in your city over there? Mainly unavailable. But I'll be glad to show you around. Martian hospitality, you know. <laughs> Amazing. Can we go right away, Commander? I'll get Connie. You can call her, Fielding. But 
we don't want to blunder into a trap. All right, men. All in. Parker, take three men and stay here for rocket guard. Yes, sir. Ready, Fielding? All set, Commander. Uh, Connie, I want you to meet our first Martian. Dr. Fielding, I don't believe it. Miss Morrison, this is, uh... uh, uh 13756. Call Zeno. Uh, Miss Morrison, this is Zeno. Uh, how do you do? Well, how do you do? Uh, incredible. But he's almost handsome in a strange way. And he speaks our language. Maybe a trick of some kind. Expedition force, on to... to... It's a little difficult to pronounce. On to... the city! We march into the city, which, of course, appeared quite deserted. Plan X. I show them a few of the sites, the canals, the Og factory, and the hall of the Grand Council. I was walking alongside of Connie, Miss Morrison, who was most unlike the women of Mars. I caught myself showing off, riding the aerial transmission belt with one hand. Finally, I took them all to the art museum. Oh, Commander, this place, this civilization, it's fantastic, fantastic. Look at this sculpture, Dr. Fielding, the line, the detail. I've never seen anything so beautiful. <laughs> it's nothing, really. Zeno, you don't mean that you... Well, no, no, no. You see, I work at an atomic escalator factory. I'm in stair treads. Everybody, over here. Look at this. Huh? Oh, what is it? What, why, isn't that... Why, Zeno, is, is this what I think it is? Hmm? I'll have to read the nameplate. Oh, yes, yes, a flying saucer. From 1952, your calendar. 100 years old. 1952, the year of the flying saucers. Then they did come from Mars. Oh, yes. But none of them ever landed on Earth. Why? Mm, it just didn't seem worthwhile. Nothing personal, of course. I just can't get over this planet. It's so different from anything we imagined. Now, here's something you might be interested in. Uh, right over here. What? Looks like a weapon of some kind. Oh, yes. Uh, you see, it's a uh, paralyzer ray. It's 300 years old. But why do you have it in a museum? You don't mean that weapons like this are 300 years obsolete? Well, you might say that, yes. You see, no adult Martian has carried a weapon for hundreds of years. Well, why not? Why should we? But to defend yourself. Well, we just have no aggressive impulses, that's all. Well, if someone struck you, wouldn't you strike back? Mm, I couldn't. But it doesn't matter. No one could strike me. No Martian, that is. Yes. We've never had any trouble. Uh, Zeno, you're in the diplomatic service? The escalator game. Yet you were delegated to meet us. Yes, by the Grand Council. You see, we stopped having diplomats handle our important missions years ago. Again, nothing personal, of course. <laughs> I see. But you are empowered to deal with us. Deal with you? I certainly am. Uh, good. Now, it seems logical to me that we should work out a mutual defense pact. Not right now, of course. Mr. Zeno! Mr. Zeno! Who's that? We look like children. We have to see you, Mr. Zeno. Uh, just some little friends of mine. Oh, they're darling. What's the problem, Ormy? We're building something, and we're all out of uranium. We need some right away, and... Zeno, does he mean real uranium? Oh, of course, Dr. Fielding. Oh, it won't hurt them a bit. We have to have it right away, Mr. Zeno. We just have to have it. This, this city was deserted. Where did these children come from? 
Oh, you know how it is with kids when they get to playing. You'll get the uranium for us, won't you, Mr. Zeno? Will you? Fascinating. Uh, what are they playing, Zeno? Yes. Uh, what's the game? I don't think you've heard of it, Commander. It's called Plan X. Autolite is bringing you Mr. Jack Benny in Plan X. Tonight's presentation in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. And now, Autolite brings back to our Hollywood soundstage Mr. Jack Benny in Elliot Lewis's production of Plan X, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. For the next week, I showed the Earth expedition around the city, signed a few treaties, and had several long conversations with Miss Morrison. Well, not too long, but I felt we were building a solid friendship. It was too bad it was coming to an end. You're not going out again this evening, Zeno? Mother, so I've been out two evenings in a row. It doesn't have to be fatal, you know. This is the time of year you always get that chest cold. Oh, chest cold, chest cold. Anyway, Mother, I have to go over to the rocket. Don't they plan to go back to Earth tomorrow? They plan to, yes. Miss Morrison promised to take a little farewell walk with me this evening. Hmm. Don't let her keep you out in the moonlight too long, Zeno. Mother, why, that's the most ridiculous thing I... You just don't know how attractive you are. Now, Mother, Miss Morrison and I are merely friends. And to think of anything beyond that is just... Mr. Zeno! Mr. Zeno! We're almost finished the game, Mr. Zeno. Good, good. All finished, Army? Just about. It's tomorrow morning at 8.45, isn't it? 8.45. Uh, anything else you need, Army? I mean, any more uranium? No. I just wanted to make sure it was 8.45. Well, see you in the morning, Mr. Zeno. Goodbye, Mrs. Zeno. See you in the morning, Army. <laughs> Such a cute little fellow, Zeno. And smart. Is he? Mother, you have no idea. The Earth expedition was camped beside their rocket, getting ready for takeoff the next day. Connie, uh, uh, Miss Morrison, waved when she saw me coming. I waved back, and then she smiled at me, and I smiled back. It was a beautiful evening. We walked out over the plain, Connie and I, and then we sat down quite close. Connie lit a cigarette, and I opened up a package of Gurkhog. Zeno? Yes, Connie. Miss Morrison. <laughs> Connie. How is it you're not married, Zeno? Don't Martians believe in it? Oh, definitely. But there's mother and... And what? Connie, you don't find me a little bit strange? You mean because you're a Martian? Not exactly. You see, even to Martian girls, I'm a little bit strange. I find you very attractive, Zeno. Really? You're from a superior race. Well... The commander may not see it, but Dr. Fielding does, and I do. Your civilization, your culture, and you? Well, actually, I'm... What are the other Martians like? You know, I seem to feel there are people all around watching, waiting, and yet we've seen only you. And the children, of course. Yes, and the children. They've been playing around the rocket all day. Yes. 
Yes. Zeno, what'll happen to this planet, this beautiful planet, when the next Earth rocket comes? And the next one? Connie. I'd almost like to stay here. Or I wish we'd never come. None of us. Connie, there's something I... I... What, Zeno? What is it? It's just that... It's getting cold. Maybe we'd better go back. I walked with Connie back to the rocket, and then I went home. There was a message on the autophone pad. The Grand Council wanted to see me at once. You sent for me, gentlemen? 13756 called Zeno. You are nearing the completion of Plan X. I hope my work has been satisfactory. You were selected for certain qualifications, Zeno. Set habit patterns, attention to detail, no strong emotional drives. I remember, yes. You have assumed a responsibility based on those qualifications. I suppose you might put it that way. Are you still prepared to discharge that responsibility? Well, I... I think you might as well know that it's been my criticism in the past, as well as that of a lot of other taxpayers, that the Grand Council interferes entirely too much in the private lives of... Well, well what I mean to say... Are you prepared to discharge your responsibility? But about Connie... I mean, Miss Morrison, isn't there some way... You that... know that there is not. Well, I... I suppose not, no. Plan X will then be completed. I assure the Grand Council, at 8.45 tomorrow morning, Plan X will be completed. I didn't sleep well that night. Mother was worried when I hadn't any appetite in the morning. She thought it was the start of one of my chest colds. Purposely, I didn't go out to the rocket until almost 8.40. They were blasting the motors, getting ready to take off. Zeno, I thought you weren't coming. I, I overslept, Connie. That is, I, I didn't really oversleep, but... The uh... children have been here for an hour. Just about finished playing, Mr. Zeno. Oh, good, Army. Did you win the game? Plan X? I think so. We'll know in a minute, Mr. Zeno. They're so intense. Are the children on Mars always that way, Zeno? Well, not always, no. Ah, come to see us off, did you, Zeno? Good boy. We counted on you. Well, thank you. Come over here, Fielding. Uh, yes, Commander. Connie, Fielding, Zeno here has been so helpful to us that I've come to a decision. That's very nice of you, but I'm pretty well stocked up on beads right now. Uh, a different I... kind of a present. Zeno, I've decided to invite you to come with us to Earth. To Earth? How about it, Zeno? We're taking off in uh, 16 minutes at 9 o'clock. How about it? Well, it's not that I don't appreciate your thinking of me, but Mother would worry and... Uh... You see, we need you, Zeno. That's not true. Well, I'm afraid it is. You see, I think Zeno is a much more important man than a worker in an elevator factory. Escalator. I'm in stair trains. And if we have Zeno along the next time we come back to Mars, we'd be much less likely to run into, well, an ambush. I'm afraid he's right, Connie. He's not right. How about it, Zeno? Thanks, but no. Commander, those kids, they've got some sort of a ray gun set up. Fielding. Is it real, Fielding? Why, it, it looks like it, Commander. Get Zeno over in front of us, quick. Now they can't shoot without hitting him. Get your gun out, Parker. You mean the kids, Commander? If we have to, yes. Tell them not to fire on us, Zeno. I'm sorry, Connie. Really sorry. Oh, it's all right, Zeno. 
Do what you have to do. Shall we shoot, Mr. Zeno? Have your gun ready, Parker. It wouldn't do any good, Commander. All right, Army. Plan X. Did you... Did you fire, Parker? Me, sir? Fire a gun? Why, well, I couldn't. I couldn't do a thing like that. No, no, of course you couldn't. I... I don't know what made me ask. Uh, the rocket. Its motors have stopped. Its motors have stopped, Commander. Well, we aren't going anywhere. Are we? Someone said something about going back to Earth. Back to Earth? Oh, no. Of course not. Of course not. Everybody all right? What happened, Commander? What happened? Nothing, really. It's just that Army and his little friends built a maturity ray. It takes people who are, shall we say, less advanced and increases their IQ by several thousand years. That's amazing. Child's play. Zeno, do you mean to say... Commander, Dr. Fielding... Parker, Connie, permit me to congratulate you as fellow Martians. <laughs> Utterly amazing. Connie. Look, here come the Martians. Our fellow Martians, thousands of them. They're coming to welcome us. Connie. Oh, look at them. Oh, they look so handsome, so intelligent, so... Connie. Yeah, excuse me, Zeno. I'll be back, Commander. I have to go to them. I'll be back. Well, she did like me for a while before Plan X. But she did like me even just for a while. That's something, isn't it? Suspense. Presented by Autolite. Tonight's star, Mr. Jack Benny. Suspense is transcribed and directed by Elliot Lewis, with music composed by Lucian Morrowick and conducted by Lud Gluskin. Plan X was written for Suspense by Richard Powell. Featured in tonight's cast were Mary Jane Croft, Norma Varden, John McIntyre, Truda Marson, Howard McNear, William Conrad, Jack Crucian, Joseph Kearns, and Stuffy Singer. The Jack Benny Show may be heard every Sunday on the CBS Radio Network. And remember next week, Mr. Jeff Chandler in The Man Who Cried Wolf. I've always loved Jack Benny's acting. He did a swell job in that science fiction comedy, Plan X from Suspense in the winter of 1953. It's the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org.
We said last hour that tonight's the anniversary of the release of the jazz singer in 1927. That movie was the beginning of the end of the silent film era, and, as I mentioned, it coincided with the beginning of the golden age of radio. Well, this Friday, Rob Farr, a member of the Metropolitan Washington Old Time Radio Club, will make a presentation at the club's October meeting titled Stars of the Silence Speak, and he'll be examining the radio careers of such artists as Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, Lillian Gish, and Harold Lloyd. Their work on the air was often significant, and it's pretty much overlooked today. It should be an interesting program. The meeting is this coming Friday, October 11th at 7.30 p.m. in the Parish Hall of Trinity Episcopal Church, Columbia Pike and Wayne, Arlington, Virginia. You enter on Wayne. And to see all of this information in writing, go to the club's website, mwotrc.com, the Metropolitan Washington Old Time Radio Club. Gunsmoke was one of the inventors of what they called in the 1950s the psychological western, and tonight's episode is a complex case in point. It's called Word of Honor, and it comes from January 10th, 1953, CBS and Gunsmoke. And in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. William Conrad, the story of the violence that moved west with young America, the story of a man who moved with it, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. there, Mr. Dillon. He's just plain vanished. There's no note anywhere. You sure of that, Chester? Nothing, sir. I looked again all over. Well, it's two days now. This isn't like Doc. Well, I still think he's just gone off on an emergency. Out in the country somewhere. Maybe, but he's always left word before. Hmm. Well, what do we do, Mr. Dillon? I don't know. Might start asking people, Chester. Uh, try the saloons and the store and maybe... Maybe the depot, huh? All right, Mr. Dillon, I'll go right now. All right. Well, well, I do declare. What? Riding right up Front Street as big as life. Why, that old rascal getting us all worried about it. For land's sake, you sure are a sight for sore eyes, Doc. Where in the world have you been at, anyway? Here. Hello, Chester. Matt. Hey, you had us worried, Doc. That's all? You've been gone two days. I know. Next time, leave word, Doc. I will. I surely will. If I can. Well, it'd sure save us a lot no, of... No, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
Well, what do you mean, Doc, if uh, you can? Just that. If they let me, I'll leave word. Come on inside, Doc. Well, all right, I'm curious, Doc. You want to tell me about it? I can tell you part of it. least important part. I made a promise about the rest. You know how it is, Matt? No, but you tell me. Well, the other night, Wednesday it was, I was peacefully asleep on my couch when a couple of riders tromped right into my office. They said a man was hurt somewhere out past Fort Dodge. So naturally, I got up and I went along with them. Well, then, why didn't you leave a note and say so? They didn't tell me exactly where we was going, Chester. But they sure told me not to leave any note. They told you what? Let him talk, Chester. Now, of course, I figured then it must have been a shooting, but my job's to take care of everybody. Sinner and saved alike. And so, when finally we got to this place the next day... What place? <clears throat> that's part of what I promised not to tell, Chester. But like I was saying, there was a young man there who'd got himself shot in the back. The bullet lodged right in his spine. And I dug it out, and I did all I could for him. And then I just sat there for quite a spell. And then I put my things away. And I walked out into the other room. So, Doc, how is it? I did what I could... What do you mean? He's dead. The shock of extracting that bullet was too much for him. It's a bad place to spy him there. You killed him, huh, Doc? No. No, I didn't kill him. He's dead, ain't he? Look, mister, doctors don't kill people. Murderers Watch do. your mouth, Doc. That boy wouldn't have lived more than a couple of days with that bullet where it was. And whoever put it there murdered him. You want me to shut him up? Not yet. Doc, tell me something. You know that boy in there? I do. Sure. And the three of us here, you know any of us? Uh, him. I've seen him around somewheres. Dodge, I guess. Well, that settles it. He ain't walking out of here. Shut up. Know his name, Doc? No. No, I don't. Of course, it might come to me... Let me think now. Oh, you don't understand, Doc. He wants to kill you already. Now you're trying to remember his name. That's just going to make it worse. You can't kill a doctor for following his oath. Oh, no. I shot that boy and he tried to get away and I shoot you just as Don't easy. be a fool. I'm a doctor. And since there's nothing more I can do here, I got to be available to other patients. I've been away too long. No, what are we arguing about? Sooner we shoot him, the better. What kind of a man are you, anyways? Don't you know I'm the only doctor within a hundred miles of Dodge? Right now, it's one too many. Now, wait a minute. I'm kind of thinking the doc's right. He ain't like an ordinary man. But doctor, well, it's almost like he ain't quite human somehow. He's human enough to tell what he knows that hard-headed marshal he got in Dodge. Then we'll have him on our tail. We'll never get our 20,000. Uh-uh. Well, I figure it's us or the doc. I'm not interested in what you figure, mister. Right this minute, there may be some woman having a baby and needing me real bad. There may be several folk needing me for help. He's right. We can't kill him. I can't. You'll do what I say and nothing else, here. Oh. Doc, listen to me. If I let you go, will you promise not to tell about anybody you recognized here? And if I don't, 
And doctor or no doctor, I'll kill you myself. Yeah, I suppose you would. All right, I'm here as a doctor and nothing else. I promise. Word of honor, Doc? That's my word of honor. Okay, get out. One other thing, Doc. What? You break your word, you tell anybody where this place is or who you saw here, and we'll get to you. We'll kill you no matter where you try to hide. I gave you my word, didn't I? Sure, but don't forget what I said anyway. Don't forget for one minute. We'll kill you or die trying. That's quite a story, Doc. And you played it right smart, if you ask me. Who were they, Doc? Well, tell us. Well, I only recognized one of them, Chester. Besides the man they'd shot. So you said... Uh, have you thought of his name no, yet? No, Chester, you don't understand. I, I gave my word I wouldn't tell. Yes, but that was just so you could get away. Well, they shot me for sure otherwise, but still I gave my word. It don't matter how or why. But, Doc, they're just a bunch of killers. I know. Leave him alone, Chester. But, Mr. Dillon... Yes, sir. Matt. Yeah, Doc. Wouldn't you do the same if you were in my boots? That'd be a hard choice, Doc, but... Yeah, I suppose I would. Why any man would? Leastwise, any man of honor would. I guess I wasn't really thinking about it that way. Yeah, well, I, I'm going to get some sleep. Uh, uh, Matt, that was a good boy they murdered. I... Uh, I hope they hang for it. Oh, Dad, blast it. How are we ever going to find him, Mr. Dillon? I don't know, Chester. We don't even know who they killed. It's funny we haven't heard about it. Maybe nobody's missed him yet. <laughs> Just think. Doc could lead us straight to him right now. Well, that isn't making the Doc happy, Chester. No, sir, it sure isn't. I'm going over to the Texas Trail, Chester. I'll be back later. Yes, sir. Sam, bring me over a bottle and a glass, will you? Sure. Hello, man. Oh, hi, Kitty. You want some help for that bottle? <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm only going to have one. You can finish it. Sit down. Oh, my reputation's bad enough without my trying to get around carrying a bottle whis bit of whiskey in me. <laughs> there you be. Oh, thank you, Sam. There you are, Kitty. Well, here's the luck. Yeah, I could use some. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, you didn't come here to drink a bottle of rye, Matt. What's on your mind? Well, Kitty, I was sort of wondering if uh, maybe you'd heard any talk about uh, anybody being missing lately. Missing? Who? Well, that's just the point. I, I, I don't know who. <laughs> 
I guess you're not on much of a trail, are you, Matt? Well, a man was shot and he's dead. And I don't know who he was or who did it or where. All I know is that it happened. I'll be darned. Well, Matt, I don't know a thing I've heard that it helped. I'm sorry. Yeah, it was just a chance. You know, it's not often a man gets shot around here without everybody knowing about it. Well, I'm glad for that much, anyway. <laughs> well, thanks, Kitty. Well, good luck, Matt. Yeah, take it easy with that bottle. Yeah, I'll save it for you. So long. See you, Matt. Doc's been asleep for six straight hours, Mr. Dillon. He sure must have been tired. Yeah. Uh, here, Chester, take these letters down to the depot for me, will you? they got to be in Washington next week. Santa Fe pulls out in an hour, sir. I'll put them right in the mail car. Marshal? Why, Jake Worth, why, you haven't come into Dodge in the last six months that I know of. I'm here now, Marshal. Oh? Uh, trouble, Jake? I'd call it that. Well? You know that cottonwood, the big one down at Brandy Bend? Yeah. There's a hole cut down by the roots at the north side of it. I put a sack in that hole this morning. It's got $20,000 in it. That's a lot of money, Jake, even for you. It isn't if Hank gets back all right. Hank? That's your youngest boy, isn't it, Jake? Uh, 18 last month. Yeah. And that's ransom money. Your boy's been kidnapped, huh? He didn't show up the other night, Marshal. Next morning, I found a note tacked on the corral. Said to leave the money or they'd kill him. Oh, come on, Jake. We'll try to get there before they pick up the money. No, Marshal, I won't take any chances. They'd shoot him sure if we did that. You should have told me before you left the money. You should have come here first, you know. Listen to me, Marshal. Nobody is going to do a thing till Hank's back safe on the ranch. Not one dang thing. Jacob, they killed Hank. You'd want him hung, wouldn't you? I'll hang him myself if it comes to that. I'll hunt him down like wolves. All right, then let's go. Let's get on to Brandy Ben and wait for him. No. I already told you no. Hank's dead, Jake. Huh? They already shot him. And he's dead. What are you talking about? Where is he? I don't know. And how come you know he's dead? I, I can't tell you. Marshal, I've had about enough of this. We're wasting time here. Come on, Jake. I'll tell you what I can on the way to the river. You better by heaven or one of us ain't never gonna get to the river. <laughs> Jake Worth was known as a hard, hot-tempered man, but he was straight as they come. He'd made one fortune in Texas cattle and another in buffalo hides, and now all he wanted was his ranch and his three sons to work it with him. The Worths were good men. They didn't cause any trouble, and they worked hard. It was hard to tell Jake, but without mentioning Doc, I said what I could. And when we reached the Arkansas, we hit our horses in the clump of bush and worked our way on foot up to the big cottonwood. Then I stood up and walked out into the open. What are you doing, Marshal? You gone crazy? Come on, Jake. 
No use to hide now. Oh. That's him there, isn't it? That's Hank. I'm afraid so, Jake. confused by all this and I swallowed your story on the way down here. But I want the truth now. Every bit of it. That's all I know, Jake. Hank tried to break and one of them shot him. But we'll get him. I'll take care of myself as soon as you tell me who they are. I don't know who they are. Don't lie to me, Marshal. You know a lot you're not telling me. What's going on with you? I've told you all I can, Jake. That's my boy lying there, Marshal. He's been murdered. And if I didn't know you so well, I'd begin to think maybe you had something to do with now, it. Now, just a minute, Jake. I know you're Sunset. upset. Then why don't you tell me? Because the man who told me about it had to promise not to name anybody. That's why. What man? Who is he? I'll, I'll get it out of him if, if I have to cut it out. Yeah, I know. That's why I can't tell you who he is. What kind of a lawman are you, anyway? I've told you all I can, Jake. No. No, you haven't. Marshal, I don't believe your story about nobody. Promise nothing. You know who done it. And you're going to tell me or don't I'm... Don't try it, Jake. You can't kill me and you know it. No. I can't. Me and my boys can. And I'm giving you 24 hours to name those men and then we're coming to Dodge. There'll be blood spilt, Marshal. Jake, I give you my word, I don't know who did it. I don't believe you. I'll help you take your boy home now. Go on back to Dodge. I'll manage here. You're making a bad mistake, Jake. 24 hours, Marshal. I'll be there. We'll find you wherever you be. Jake, I want... So long, Jake. the second act of Gunsmoke in just a moment. But first, 300,000 volunteers are needed for the Ground Observer Corps. This spare time activity serves as a vital supplement of the Air Defense Command radar network, which has certain unavoidable blind spots due to the curvature of the earth. Men and women from teenage up are urged to become ground observers. Get in touch with your nearest civil defense center. Now for the second act of Gunsmoke. There was no use arguing with him. The man's grief had destroyed his reason. And the worst of it was, I knew his sons would do whatever Jake told him to do. 
Unless I could stop it somehow, I'd have to shoot it out with three good and perfectly innocent men. For no reason at all. I thought about it all the way back to Dodge, and by the time I got there, I had an idea. I went up to Doc's and talked it over with him. All right, man. I'll do whatever I can. It might not work, Doc, and you'll be exposing yourself to a lot of danger. Have you thought about that? I have. I've also been thinking about the men who killed Hank with. Well, we could wait till they start spending their money or till one of them gets drunk and maybe talks too much somewhere. We could. But meantime, you and the worst will have a gunfight. Oh, man, it'd be a terrible thing to let happen. All right, then, Doc, let's go. I want to get to the ranch before dark. Yeah, maybe Jake's cooled off by now. Enough not to start shooting on sight anyway. Yeah, we'll soon find out. Come on. You know, man, I haven't been out here since Mrs. Worth died. Oh, that must be four or five years ago. Well, the place sure has changed, hasn't it? Yeah. I don't see anybody around, do you? Maybe they saw us first. Maybe they're hit out. I hope not. See, man, I got an idea. Why don't you take your gun off and hang it around your saddle horn? Then they'll know you come peaceable. I can't take a chance like that, Doc. Not with Jake and his state. But I won't shoot unless I have to. He who lives by the sword. Look, Doc, I'm doing everything I can to avoid this thing. But I'll kill all three of them if I have to. All right, Matt. I understand. That's far enough, Marshal. Watch him, boys. If he makes a move, shoot. Yes, sir. Jake, I came here to stop a shooting, not to start one. You can stop it, Marshal. Just tell me who killed my son. If I knew I'd be on his trail, Jake. I'm not sure of that at all. What's Doc doing here? Tell him, Doc. Um, I took the bullet out of Hank. He died soon after. What? That's right, Jake. Now, come down here where we can talk like friends, and I'll explain it to you. Stay where you are, boys. Yeah. All right, Doc, let's hear it. Well, they... They got me out of bed, Jake, and they led me out into the country. Hank had been shot in the back, and I extracted the bullet, but it was no use. He'd have died anyway... There were three men there, and I recognized one of them. Who was he? Well, I had to promise I wouldn't tell, Jake. Or they'd have killed me. That don't matter now. Now, think about it a minute, Jake. Doc gave him his word. And you're asking him to break it. Now, think about it for a minute. I'm thinking. Thinking about my boy, too. Hank's dead. You can't help him now. Shot in the back. And a coward who did it's run free. You want to help get him, Jake? Don't ask fool questions, Marshal. Of course I want to get him. Then listen to me. Those men told Doc if he talked, they'd kill him. Yeah, they meant it, too. All right, so I got an idea now, Jake. We'll spread it around that Doc has identified the killer. The news will reach him soon enough. In the meantime, I'm going to lay low. 
I'll have Chester tell everybody that I've ridden out after them. Go on. Then we'll just wait. One or two or maybe all three of them will come into Dodge to kill Doc some night soon. They still might get away. And I'll deputize you and your boys right now and you can wait for them with us. You'll have to stay hidden like me, of course. Uh, We won't mind that. Now that we get a chance at them, we won't. All right, good. Funny thing, though. What? man like Doc here, rather than break his word, he'll make himself a target for those killers. Yeah. Look, Jake, Doc and I are going to go back to Dodge now. I'll see that the story gets started, and in a day or two, you and your boys can ride in. But separately, though. Otherwise, it might cause talk. I understand. And come straight to Doc's. We'll get there. few days, Doc never left his office. I figured that'd make him look scared and draw the killers right into our trap. The rest of us sat around in his back room and waited. Chester kept us supplied with food and coffee, but we began to get pretty restless cooped up like that. And by the fifth night, we were being real careful with one another and over-polite. But on the sixth night, about midnight, we got our game. Mr. Dillon, I think it's them. They just rode up Front Street, three of them. They're tying up outside right now. They acted too deliberate like for ordinary riders, so I run up the back way to tell you. Doc, come on in. Uh, What do you want me to do, Matt? Take cover in here and stay out of sight. Yeah, whatever you say, Matt. Let's go downstairs and meet them, Marshal. No, we might just scatter them that way. Mm. Now listen. One of them will probably stand guard on the street while the other two come up here to get Doc. Chester, you and the two boys go down the back way. Jake and I'll wait in the Doc's office. But don't jump that man while we go into action up here. Do you understand? I got it. All right, then move fast. Come on, Jake. Now what? Well, we'll just wait here in the dark. Good. I'll fix Doc's blanket on the couch here so they won't think he's in it. They're on the stairs now. All right, get back in the corner, Jake, or we'll be shooting each other. Quiet now. And don't start shooting until I do. Wake up, you lying no, dog. Don't you shoot him and get out of here. What? Wait. He ain't here. What? Get your hands up. You're under arrest, both of you. It's a trap. You all right, Jake? I got one of them. I'm all right. Doc? Doc, you come on out now. Yeah, oh, all right, man. They're dead. Light the lamp, will you, Doc? Uh, all right. Yes, you bet, man. Uh, light the lamp. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, come in, Chester. Where we got him, Mr. Dillon. He tried to get away when he heard you up here, but he ran smack into one of the worst boys. He's dead. Yeah. Well, I don't know either one of these men. Doc, you can tell us now. Is one of these the man you recognize? Uh, let me see here. This one here. I remember later I treated him for a broken nose sometime back. I never did know his name, though. 
He came up on the, uh, up the trail with a herd, I think. Uh, it don't matter now, as long as they're all dead. Oh, oh well, <clears throat> bring the other bodies up, uh, Chester. I'll do the autopsies quick and I'll get them out of here. <laughs> It's about time I got something out of all this. Okay, Doc. I'll fetch it. Well, Jake, uh, I'm satisfied, Marshal. Me and the boys will be getting back to the ranch now. Sure. Marshal, uh, I... Yeah? I doubted you. I'm sorry for that. Forget it, Jake. No. No, it's best I remember it. Man shouldn't make mistakes like that. Well, there was no harm done. The way it worked out. Uh, I'll buy you a drink before we leave, Marshal. <laughs> I think I'd like that, Jake. Come on, let's go. Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were John Daner with Lawrence Dobkin and Harry Bartell. Parley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Gunsmoke is heard by our troops overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. This is Roy Rowan speaking over the CBS Radio Network. Word of Honor, a Gunsmoke episode from the second week of 1953 and from the big broadcast, over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey co-produces the show, and Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at WAMU.org or on Twitter at WAMU 88.5. And do visit our Facebook page. It's The Big Broadcast. If you have a Fitbit or some other activity tracker that measures your steps you'll want to pay special attention to the very first scene in tonight's dragnet between Joe Friday and his partner, Frank Smith. And you'll hear a reference to a glider, one of those porch swings that you still see every once in a while. From June 14th, 1953, it's the episode called The Big Lily from NBC and Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to homicide detail. You get a call from a man telling you that a woman has been badly beaten. Before you can get the name of the victim or any other information, the caller hangs up. Your job? Investigate. 
documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Friday, June 10th. It was hot in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Lorman. My name's Friday. I was on my way back from the main jail, and it was 8.10 p.m. when I got to room 42. Homicide. Frank? Yeah? Wait a minute. I want to talk to you. I'm not going anyplace. Oh. Well, I talked to Evans. I couldn't get any more out of him. The arraignment's still set for the 14th, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Now, can't you settle down for a minute and stop that pacing up and down? What's the matter? Something on your mind? On my leg. Oh, something wrong with it? Not a thing. Just walking. Well, I wish you could manage to stand still for a minute. I'm getting a little bilious following you around the room. You know how far it is from here to the business office? What do you mean? How far? Oh, it's just across the hall. Is that what you mean? 25 feet? No, you're wrong. It's one two hundred and tenth of a mile. Well, that's good to know. It's one sixth of a mile to the crime lab, including the stairs. An eighth of a mile to Sal's Cafe. Four trips to R&I equals a quarter of a mile. Never knew that, did you? No. Our grand total tonight so far is over six miles. We're only half through. What do you think of that, Joe? Well, what's it all prove? Well, this is a walking job we got. Well, everybody knows that, don't they? Yeah, but I'm the only one in the department who knows exactly how far we walk. That's fine. Any calls come in while I was out? No. Like to know how I do it? What's that? It's done with a pedometer. Measures miles. Just fastened on your legs, see? At the end of the day, you know exactly how far you walk. Yeah. Gonna measure everything, Joe. Keep track. Gonna know exactly how far everything is. What for? Somebody might want to know. Who? I'll get it. Homicide, Friday. Yeah. Now, what's that address again? Yeah. Right. Now we got one to roll on. What do you got? Ambulance follow-up, Westlake area. Yeah. Woman's been beaten. 8.45 p.m. We left the city hall and drove to the address we'd been given. 8674 Cambria Street was a large private home that had been divided into apartments. The house was quiet and there was no sign of any disturbance. There was a woman sitting in a glider on the front porch. We went up and talked to her. Something I can do for you? Police officers, ma'am. We got a call that there'd been some sort of trouble here. What kind of trouble? A woman had been beaten, is that right? It must be some kind of joke, nothing like that here. You sure you got the right address? The one we were given, ma'am. You got an apartment 104? Yeah, the last one back on the left. Rockman's live there, Mr. and Mrs. We'd like to see the apartment. Go ahead. Anything happened around here, I'd know about it. I'm the landlady. Anything happened, I'd know about it. Go ahead, you won't find anything. Thank you very much, ma'am. Here it is. I'll get it. Better try the door, huh? Yeah. Nobody here. Looks like they had a party, huh? I'll yeah. check the back. No? No one out there? Coffee on the table's cold. You find anything? Where's that door go, ma'am? Bedroom. Joe, this girl on the bed. No. Worked her over, huh? How about it? See if I can find her pulse here. Yeah, she's still alive. 
Uh, what is it? Something happened to Hazel? Joe, it's pretty bad. They're both eyes black, bleeding. Is this Mrs. Rockman here? Yeah, it's Hazel. What's wrong? Where's her husband? I don't know. When'd you see him last? Well, about five minutes ago. Where was that? On the front porch. He just walked out. The ambulance crew arrived and immediately removed the victim to Georgia Street Receiving Hospital for emergency treatment. We got in touch with Officer Ed Barrett of the hospital detail and asked him to try to get a statement from the victim if she regained consciousness. We locked the door to the Rockman apartment to preserve any physical evidence we might need, and then we went down and talked to the landlady, Mrs. Ruth Baker. We found her on the front porch. We asked her what she knew about what had happened. I sure wish I could tell you more. How about Hazel? Is she going to be all right? We don't know yet, Miss Baker. She's pretty badly beaten. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you want from me? Some questions we'd like to ask, ma'am. About what? I've told you what I know. Do you know where Mrs. Rockman's husband was going? No, I don't. I don't much care either. Did you say anything at all when he went out? Not a word. Just walked out in a sort of daze, like a trance, sort of. He didn't say anything at all to you? I just got through telling you that he didn't. Yes, ma'am. Mr. and Ms. Rockman fight often, would you know? No, not any more than any married couple. Miss Baker... Yeah? wonder if you can give us a description of Mr. Rockman. Description? Yes, ma'am. Tell us what he looks like. You figure he did that to Hazel, huh? That's what we want to talk to him about. What kind of description do you want? About how tall is he? About as tall as he is? That'd be 5'10", huh? If that's what you are. How much would you say weighed... Wouldn't even make a guess. I don't notice things like that. Yes, ma'am, but would you say he was medium build or heavy? I'd say medium. Not too heavy, not too skinny. Medium. What color is his hair? Black. How about his eyes? Brown. Real dark brown. He wear glasses? No. Was he clean shaven? What do you mean? Well, do you have a mustache? No, he had one a while ago. He tried to grow one, but Hazel made him take it off. It never grew real well. little scraggly thing. What was he wearing when you saw him last? Shirt and pants. Could you tell us what color the shirt was? No, and I can't tell you what color the pants were either. It's dark out here. I didn't pay much attention when he left. Just thought he didn't feel well. Sick from the party. All right, Miss Baker. May I use your phone? Sure. Help yourself. It's in the living room right inside the door to your left. You can't miss it. All right, ma'am. Thanks. I'll call this in, Joe. Right. You're Miss Baker? Yeah? Does Mr. Rockman drink much? Why do you ask that? Well, I wonder if there might be some bar in the neighborhood that he might have gone to, maybe. No, he doesn't drink much at all. Once in a while, he and Hazel have a glass of wine before dinner. You know, sharpen the appetite, just a glass of wine before dinner. Mm -hmm. And you haven't any idea where he might have gone? Not the slightest. Does he have any relatives in the city? can't answer that. You mean you don't know? Must have some people someplace. Most of us do. But I'm not the kind of person who pries into the private lives of my tenants. They pay their rent, no loud parties, and I don't bother them. How about this party tonight? Yeah, what about it? Was there any trouble? Not that I knew about. You didn't hear anything? Any loud talking? Any arguments, maybe? Nope, I wasn't at the party. Wasn't invited. Hazel gave it for her Tony friends. Gonna play bridge. I wasn't there. Yes, ma'am. Could you tell us who was there? Never been able to get the hang of the game. Don't like cards. Chinese checkers, that's my game. Never could understand bridge, so I wasn't invited. Well, can't you give us a list of the people who were there? I suppose. Why do you need it? We'd like to talk to them. 
Well, I guess it'd be all right to give them to you. How's Hazel? You heard yet? No, ma'am. Sure a terrible thing. Not that maybe she didn't deserve it, but it's sure terrible. Why do you say that, Miss Baker? What do you mean, why do I say it? I say it because it's true. No other reason to say something. Yes, ma'am, but what do you mean? Just that it was bound to happen. Somebody was bound to haul off and slap her mouth shut one of these days, the way she talked. Ma'am? Accusing. Always accusing. Thought everybody in the world was after her. Always tell me that she knew about me, that I wasn't fooling anybody. The words she'd use. And her supposed to be so Tony. Well, did she have any enemies around her? Anyone to make her think that, would you know? Well, she didn't have any right-out enemies. There were several people who didn't like her. They thought she was too snooty for them. I call the office, Joe. They're putting out a broadcast. Did you check him? Yeah, nothing on him. Mm-hmm. Hope it's all right, ma'am. I left your number in case they want to reach us. Sure, it's all right. Can you give us the names of the people who were at the party tonight, ma'am? Well, there was Lily Davis, the Harrises, and there was some fellow with Lily that I never saw before. You know where you can get in touch with him, do you? Well, the Harrises live up in 203, and Lily has an apartment 105 right across from the Rockmans. She ought to be able to tell you something. Don't know if it's going to be the truth, but she'll think of something to tell you. Yes, ma'am. Is she a good friend of Mrs. Rockman's, do you know? Oh, you bet. They're thick as thieves. Always having little lunches by themselves, talking secrets, buzzing around. Thieves. Myself, I never took to Lily. I always thought she was kind of wild. Divorcee, you know. All right, Miss Baker, thank you very much. We'll be in 105 if there are any calls. Appreciate it if you let us know. If Mr. Rockman comes in, don't mention to him that we're here. Mm-hmm. All right. That was 105, you said? Yeah. Better talk to this Davis woman, huh? Yeah, maybe she can tell us where Rockman is. Yeah. 105, here it is. Sir. Yes? Miss Davis? Yes. Is there something I can do for you? Yes, ma'am. We're police officers. And what is it you want with me? We'd like to talk to you, ma'am. Oh, well, come in. Thank you. I wonder if it'd be all right if we left the door open. I suppose so. Any special reason? Well, we'd like to keep an eye on the apartment across the hall. Well, what's it about? We understand that you know the Rockmans pretty well. I suppose so. Why? You have any idea where Mr. Rockman might be? No, I don't. Isn't he across the hall? No, ma'am, he isn't. Well, then I don't know where he is. Have you talked to Hazel? No, ma'am. Well, why don't you ask her? She should know. Well, we were wondering if you could help us out. No, last I saw of him was when he left their place. Uh-huh. Say, I wonder if you'd mind if I went ahead with what I was doing. Ma'am? <laughs> Probably seems silly to you, but it's a hobby of mine. Wire sculpture. Silly, but it gives me a chance to relax. Yes, ma'am. Well, you go right ahead. I don't think I got your names. Well, my name's Friday. This is my partner, Frank Smith. How do you do, Mr. Smith? How do you Smith? do, ma'am? Mr. Friday. Well, what's all this about? Herman done something wrong? No, it's just a routine investigation, Miss Davis. Oh, mm-hmm. I understand that you were at their place tonight, a party, huh? Well, yes. Hazel was going to have a couple of tables of bridge. Anything unusual happen while you were there? No, nothing that you'd call really unusual. Who was there, ma'am? Oh, myself, the Harrises. They live upstairs, and Tom Reeves. Another couple were coming over after dinner, but they called and said they couldn't make it. It's just as well. None of us felt much like playing. Why was that? Well, Hazel wasn't feeling very well. She and Herman had a little argument. You know how it is. Kind of uncomfortable. Excuse me. Hello? Yes. Oh, yes, Tom. No. Well, you've got to understand she wasn't feeling too well. Mm-hmm. Just one of those things. Yeah. What? No, I've got a meeting that I want to go to tomorrow night. Modern art, yes. At a place down on Melrose. Well, sure, if you if you want to. 
Mm-hmm. All right. You want to pick me up about seven? Right. Okay. See you then. Bye. Excuse me, that was Tom. He's a nice boy. I just met him tonight. The Rockman set it up. Mm-hmm. What was this argument that the Rockmans had? Do you know what that was about? Well, it was nothing, just a little thing. Hazel hadn't been feeling well lately. It's awfully easy to set her off. I guess sometimes Herman doesn't realize it. Yes, ma'am, but what caused it tonight? Well, you see, Hazel's been thinking that there was somebody been following her, spying on her. She told Herman about it tonight. That made him a little angry. And, well, then at dinner we just sat down. Mrs. Harris said that she'd seen a picture of the dress that Hazel had on in the morning paper. Well, Hazel didn't understand. I guess she thought that Mrs. Harris was being nasty about it. And she got up and left the table, went into the bedroom. Yes, ma'am. Herman got up and went in after her. Came out and said that she wasn't feeling well. Kind of threw a damper on the evening. So when the other couple called and said that they wouldn't be able to make it, we all decided to call it quits. Mm-hmm. Was there any reason for Mrs. Rockman to feel that there was somebody spying on her? Oh, no, Mr. Friday. It was just one of those things. She'd go along fine, feel good, and then she'd wake up in the morning and start to think about things and she'd get depressed. Well, when she's like that, there isn't anything that can lift her out of it. We used to talk about it. I'd try to help her. Same thing happened to me, I know. It's just one of those things. Yes, ma'am. Maybe if they'd had children, it'd be different, but lately she hasn't been feeling well, and she and Herman haven't been getting along. He just didn't seem to understand. She'd get angry, and he'd work late, and the more he worked late and stayed away from home, the more she'd fret and get angry. It's just a vicious circle. Nothing anyone can do about it. It'll pass with time. Mm-hmm. When Rockman went in to see his wife, did they argue? Well, they had a few words, a little loud, nothing serious. Then he came out and said that everything was all right. Well, ma'am, did Rockman ever get violent toward his wife, do you know? What do you mean, violent? He ever hit her? No, I don't think so. A couple of times when I was over there, he looked like he might be thinking of it, but I never saw it. I think if he ever did hit her, Hazel would have told me. We were very close, as I said. I tried to help her. Mm-hmm. Just a few loud words, that's all I ever knew about. Anyway, after Herman came out of the bedroom, we all decided to leave. This fellow, Tom, he wanted to go on, you know, out someplace, but I was a little tired, and I'd just met him tonight, so I begged off and came home. Yes, ma'am. Can't you tell me what this is all about? Miss Davis? Hello, Mrs. Baker. Something you want? I want to see the police. Mr. Smith, your office called, said you were to call this number right away. Here's the number they gave me. They said you'd know I wrote it down. Thank you, ma'am. Here, you want to call, Joe? Yeah. What if I use your phone, Miss Davis? Sure, help yourself. Thank you. Isn't this the most awful thing you've heard in all your life? What? What about Herman? What he did? Terrible. They ought to send him away for a long time. A good long time. Dr. Hall, please. What are you talking about? All the ambulances, the police, never had a thing like this happen before. All the excitement and what Herman did, just terrible. That's all terrible. Hey, Miss Baker, would you wait just a minute, please? Well, somebody tell me what this is all Hello, about. Hello, Doc Hall, this is Joe Friday. Yeah. Yeah, we're here now. She is. You sure about that, are you? Yeah, well, he does, right. Now, we'll call him right now. Yes, it does. Right. Bye. It's Georgia Street. Yeah. Ms. Rockman died. Or something else. What? She wasn't beaten. She was shot to death. You are listening to Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action.
9.10 p.m. We called the crime lab and Ray Pinker and a crew were sent out to check the physical evidence at the scene. We contacted Ed Barrett at the hospital, but he said the woman had not regained consciousness. Frank and I went upstairs to talk with Mr. and Mrs. Harris. They gave us substantially the same story we'd gotten from Lily Davis. They agreed that when Rockman went into the bedroom to see his wife, they'd heard loud voices but nothing else. They stated positively that as far as they knew, there'd been no shot fired while they were in the Rockman apartment. 9.17 p.m. We checked with the other people in the apartment building. None of them could report having heard a shot. From them, we got the same story of Mrs. Rockman's actions. Some of the neighbors said that they didn't get along with her. Others seemed to understand her feelings. 9.22 p.m. We checked back with Ray Pinker and the crew from the crime lab. We didn't spend a lot of time here, Ray. The husband looked good for it. We were trying to round him up. Shooting was a real surprise, huh? Looked like a beating to us. We couldn't tell. The boys from Georgia Street got her out of here right away. Yeah. Did you come up with anything, Ray? Yeah, a couple things. How you fellas got it figured? Well, talking to the neighbors, looks like the husband does. Talked to him? No, he walked right out after it happened. Got out a broadcast on him. Nothing's turned up yet, though. Mm-hmm. How's it look to you, Ray? Well, I'm not sure I can go along with you guys and the husband. Yeah. I talked to Doc Hall. We aren't going to be able to know for sure till they post the body. Woman was slapped around, we know that. Yeah, we saw her. It looked pretty brutal to us. You mean the black eyes? Yeah. What Doc Hall says, that didn't come from beating. He says the bullet did it. Was he pretty sure about it? it looks like it. Autopsy will prove it. Where'd you find the gun? Under the bed. Over here, right side. Mm-hmm. Indentation on the floor here. Evidently fell from her hand, bounced back under the bed. Any prints on it? Lifted three clean ones. You been able to make them? Lifted some from the dressing table over there. Perfume bottles, mirror. Looks like they might belong to the dead woman. Check them for sure later. And you figure maybe she did herself then, huh? Well, it's beginning to shape up. Well, how about the shot, Ray? Nobody we've talked to heard it. Here's the explanation for that. This pillow here. See the bullet hole here? Burn? Yeah. Doc Hall says she was shot in the back of the right ear. She must have held the gun in the pillow. That muffled the sound. What noise there was wouldn't be heard very far. Well, how can you be sure it was suicide, Ray? Just an idea now. We roll a dead woman's prints, run a blotter test on her, see if she fired the gun. Check for nitrate, we'll know for sure. Well, how long will that take? I'll be finishing in an hour or so. I'll let you know then. From where I sit, though, it looks like she did it herself. Yeah. I still don't understand about the black eyes, though. The way I get it, the bullet entered just behind the right ear. Passed behind the eyes. I've seen it a couple times before. Yeah, but Doc Hall said that she'd been slapped a couple of times, right? Yeah. Said he found a couple of bruises on her cheeks. Not enough to do any damage, though. Sure not enough to kill her. Mr. Friday? Mr. Friday? Yes, ma'am. Uh, can you come right over to my place? Herman's on the phone. What's that? Mr. Rockman. He called to find out how Hazel was. All right. Phone's right there. Thank you. Hello? 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 Well, he's not there now. What'd he say? Well, he asked me if I knew how Hazel was. I told him that she was dead, and then I asked him where he was. Did he tell you? No. He just said for me to tell people that he was sorry he did it, for me to tell them that, that he didn't mean it. Mm-hmm. He said he didn't mean to kill Hazel. Well, the way it looks, he didn't do it. Then you better find him right away. Ma'am? He thinks he did, and he's going to kill himself. We talked to the landlady, Ruth Baker, but she was unable to tell us where Herman Rockman was employed. Lily Davis told us that he was a car salesman employed at a lot in the south end of town. We asked Miss Davis to stay by our phone in the event that Rockman called back and to let us know immediately if he did. We found an address book in the desk in the living room of the apartment and we began to call Rockman's friends and relatives. None of them had seen him or could tell us where he worked. 9.45 p.m. It had been 20 minutes since the husband of the dead woman had called and said that he was going to kill himself. At 9.46 p.m., we contacted a brother-in-law of the dead woman, and he told us that as far as he knew, Rockman had been employed by the Bateman Auto Agency in Gardena. We got the number from information, and I put in the call. 
Hello, is this the Bateman Auto Agency? Well, this is Sergeant Joe Friday, Los Angeles Police Department. Yes, sir. Do you have a Herman Rockman working for you? Yes, sir, that's right. R-O-C-K-M-A... Uh-huh. I say, when was that? Yeah. You any idea where he's working now? Uh-huh. Yes, yeah, sir, I understand. Yeah, well, have you got the number? Fine, yeah. Would you know if they're open this time of night? I see. Okay, all right, sure, I'll hold on. How about it? Says Rockman did work for him. He hasn't seen him in a couple... Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's 03, right? Yes, sir, thanks very much. Says he's heard Rockman's working for a company out on Washington Boulevard now. Huh. Left him a couple weeks ago. Hello. Do you have a Herman Rockman working there? Hello. Hello. Somebody answered. As soon as I asked about Rockman, he hung up. Think it was him? There's no way of telling. We better check on it quick. You got the address? Yeah, it ought to take us about five minutes to get there. Let's go. We still got a chance. Nine fifty PM. We left the apartment and we drove out West Lake Avenue and turned down to Washington Boulevard. We traveled Code 3, but because of the possibility of alarming Rockman, we turned off the sirens six blocks from the address of the used car lot. 9.54 p.m. We got to the place. The lot was dark. At the rear and back of a line of cars, we could see a small shack. I hope he's here. Yeah. No lights on. Door's locked. Let's try the side. There's a window around there. Right. Can you see anything? No, the window's dirty. Got your flashlight? Yeah, here you go. Give me it. How about it? He's in there. Looks like he's out. Come on. Let's hit it. Right. Full of gas. Kill your flashlight. Right. I'll get him out of here. You want to get that heater? Right. The window's stuck. Break it. How about it? He's still alive. Fresh air should bring him around. Yeah. Rockman. Rockman. <laughs> Come on, Rockman. You're all right. Sit up. What? Why'd you do it? Why'd you stop me? No reason for you to kill yourself. I got a reason. I killed Hazel. I didn't mean to. I loved him more than anything. I, I didn't mean it. I didn't know I hit her that hard. Settle down. Settle down. You didn't kill her, Rockman. Nobody asked you to come down here. I called you to take care of her. I, I knew it was too late. I killed her. She's dead, and it's my fault. Why'd you come here? Why'd you stop me? All right, now take it easy, will you, Rockman? Straighten yourself out here. You didn't kill your wife, Rockman. You understand? What? We don't think you killed her. We think she did it herself. Huh? Oh. Well, she wasn't well. She was sick. She, she didn't know what she was doing. She did the wrong thing, didn't she? Her way wasn't right. I loved her, you know, very much. Yes, sir, we understand. Doesn't really make any difference. You stop me. No difference. Sir? Doesn't make any difference that you stop me. I loved her. No difference at all. How's that? I died with her. The story you have just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On June 15th, an inquest was held in the coroner's office in and for the county of Los Angeles. In a moment, the results of that inquest. At the coroner's inquest, it was decided that the wound that killed Hazel Eileen Rockman was self-inflicted. 
the death was listed as a suicide. Her husband, Herman George Rockman, was not held. just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, June Whitley, Lillian Bayeth. Script by John Robinson, Ben Alexander. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. The Big Lily, an episode of Dragnet from the last week of spring in 1953 and from the big broadcast. We want to mark the 75th anniversary day after tomorrow of a sad event that shocked the nation, the death of Wendell Wilkie. In 1940, as the Republican nominee for president, Mr. Wilkie had come closer to beating Franklin D. Roosevelt than either of his predecessors, Herbert Hoover and Alf Landon. After the election, Mr. Wilkie went to London to support President Roosevelt's campaign to aid Great Britain in World War II. At home, he spoke out against Charles Lindbergh's anti-Semitism. He promoted civil rights for African Americans. And when we finally entered the war, he traveled tirelessly around the world to build international cooperation. And he took exception to the internment of Japanese Americans. Mr. Wilkie campaigned actively for the Republican nomination again in 1944, but he came in last in the Wisconsin primary, and he didn't even attend the convention. But he stayed active and in the public eye, and that's why it was such a shock when he died after multiple heart attacks on October 8, 1944. Wendell Wilkie was 52 years old. He'd been a tremendously successful businessman and lawyer, his law firm still bears his name, and he may have been unique in American politics. We're going to hear from Wendell Wilkie now, in audio taken from one of his filmed campaign stump speeches that ran in movie theaters in 1940. Because I am a businessman, of which incidentally I am very proud and was formerly connected with a large company, the doctrinaires of the opposition have attempted to picture me as an opponent of liberalism. But I was a liberal before many of those men heard the word. And I fought for the reforms of the elder La Follette and Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson before another Roosevelt adopted and distorted the word liberal. I believe that the forces of free enterprise must be regulated. I'm opposed to business monopolies. I believe in the right of collective bargaining by labor without any interference and full protection of that obvious right. I believe in minimum standards for wages and maximum standards for hours, and I believe that such standards should constantly improve. I'm in favor of the regulation of interstate utilities, of banking, of the security markets. I believe in federal pensions, in adequate old age benefits, and in unemployment allowances. I believe that the federal government owes a duty to adjust the position of the farmer with that of the manufacturer. If this cannot be done, 
by parity prices, then some other method must be found without too much regimentation of the farmer's affairs. I believe in the encouragement of cooperative buying and selling, and in the full extension of rural electrification. And I believe that the federal government owes a very strong obligation to preserve our natural resources. But I do not base my claim to liberalism solely upon my support and advocacy of such reforms. American liberalism does not consist merely in reforming things. It consists primarily in making things. We must substitute for the philosophy of distributed scarcity, the philosophy of unlimited productivity. I stand for the restoration of full production and re-employment in American private enterprise. Present administration has spent $60 billion. The New Deal stands for doing what has to be done by spending as much money as possible. I propose to do it by spending as little as money as possible. This is one issue in this campaign that I intend to make crystal clear before the conclusion of the campaign so that everybody in this country may understand the tremendous waste of their resources and money that have taken place in the last seven and a half years. Republican candidate Wendell Wilkie running for president in 1940. Mr. Wilkie passed away 75 years ago this week on October 8th, 1944. I'm Murray Horwitz, and this is the big broadcast from WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. In our observation of the 75th anniversary of World War II, We've mentioned several times over the past three years that one of the great radio masters, Arch Obler, was unbelievably prolific during that conflict. He wrote and produced and directed an almost countless array of radio plays, and they were all designed to unify and to inspire the country. He brought to the work his singular sensibility. Remember, this was the guy who had taken over the creepy series Lights Out. And he often used offbeat forms and narratives to tell his stories. Here's an example from his wartime series, Free World Theater. True to Arch Obler form, it has an odd dramatic structure that inevitably pays off in the end. It's a piece based on a statement by Franklin Roosevelt. Mr. Obler had asked a number of Allied leaders for statements on which he then based his radio plays. Perhaps the most remarkable thing about this show is the list of collaborators. It has a cast that includes Frank Lovejoy, whom we know as Randy Stone in Nightbeat, Ben Alexander, later of Dragnet fame, Mercedes McCambridge, a terrific actress and the voice of the devil in the movie The Exorcist, and Hans Conried, among others. The music is by Jerome Moras, who would later write one of the greatest of all movie scores, The Big Country. And at the end of the show, you'll hear a statement from Robert Rosson, who went on to write and direct a number of films, including All the King's Men and The Hustler. From a time when the outcome of the war was far from certain, June 27, 1943, here is Arch Obler's V-Day from Free World Theater. Today we bring you V-Day, a play based on a theme suggested by a statement of the President of the United States.
Hollywood Writers Mobilization presents the Free World Theater, dedicated to you, the fighting men and women of the United Nations. Ladies and gentlemen, because this is a war not only of men, but ideas, the Hollywood Writers' Mobilization, in cooperation with the Blue Network and the Hollywood Victory Committee, has been presenting a series of plays based on ideas suggested by outstanding statesmen, writers, and philosophers of our time. These ideas have been dramatized by Hollywood's most talented playwrights, with the leading roles of the plays taken by some of our finest actors and actresses. As our final broadcast, we present V-Day, based upon a theme suggested by a statement of President Franklin D. Roosevelt. The play is written and directed by Arch Obler. This is the future. This is the day for which men died in Rotterdam, in Warsaw, at Rostov, at Crete, over the English Channel, Hill 609 in Tunis, and fighting inch by inch back across the lowlands, up through the Balkans, back across Poland. Yes, this is the day free men have fought for, when a million soldiers of our United Nations marched down Unter den Linden, Berlin. But there is plenty of time. No, no. Please, hurry, Mama. Yes, my son. Will he remember me, Mama? Will he? Yes. The next corner. <laughs> if there are many people in front, will you lift me up, Mama, so I can see? Yes. Oh, Mama. It is the wrong street. No. Under the linden. But people. Where are the people? Only a few. The rest are in their homes. But why, Mama? Don't they want to see? No. Come. We will stand by the curbing. I, I don't see them coming. It is very early. But I should see something. Oh, Mama. If they don't come... They will. Just stand and wait, my son. They will. Yes, Mama. Anna. Anna, is it possible it is you? Yes, I. Take the boy. Come home at once. Uncle Frederick, are you going to watch with us? Anna, did you hear me? So take the boy and go where every good German is today, in his home. Oh, no, sir. He'll be with Hold them. Hold your mouth. Anna, I warn you, those who stand here on the German street on this morning, disgrace will not be forgotten. Go to your home. No. Are you insane? Do you think that this day has any lasting meaning to us? Let them think so. But I know that in 20 years it will be we who march down their streets in a final victory. Anna, for the last time, go to your home. No. Give me the boy. No. All right. Stay. You and those other degenerate fools who stand on this street today have no more home in the Reich. You understand? Please let me alone. All right. 
Good bye, Anna. <laughs> Mama. What? It's all right. Look. In the sky. Oh, Mama. The bombers. Jump about, just stand and watch. Will we be after the tanks? I don't know. Legs together. Mama, drummers. Mama, the soldiers. Mama, No, no, stand. The checks. They were the first, so they march first. Then they'll know. No, stay. But I've got to ask It's not them, Peter. No. Mama, who... Who's coming now? I don't know their flag. Polish. What hate they must have. Mama, listen to me. Can I ask them? Will they know? No. Wait. But, but Mama, you told me. You told me. Listen. Listen. Place for the petit enfant. Uh, uh, please, mister, have you seen him? Have you? <laughs> C'est pas qu'est-ce que vous dites, mon petit allemand. Et même si je comprenais, je ne voudrais pas. Uh, 
Mister, I don't know what you're saying. Uh, please, mister, I've got to talk oh, to you. Ne tirez pas mon jacket, <laughs> vous m'embêtez. Hey, uh, Louis, hein? tu parles sa langue. Demande-lui qu'est-ce qu'il veut. Uh, qui est ce garçon? Uh, je ne sais pas, pas lui. Oh, oui. Uh, what is it, little boy? What is it you want? Have you seen him, please? I see many. Who? My father. Your father? Yes, sir. My mother told me Monsieur, he... Monsieur, voilà un petit quelque chose papa. Qu'est-ce que tu <laughs> well, young one, you see, there are many fathers here. <laughs> Choose whichever one you want, eh? Entendu, monsieur? Oh, no. No, it is not a joke. My mother said that on the day oh, when... Go, boy, there are a million more men in the marching today. Go and ask them. Ask the Hollanders, the Anders, eh? But, mister... Go, 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 go. I have no time for foolishness this day. Yes, sir. Hello. Encore une fois, mes Please, mister, have you seen him? It's frightening dad's hail food. The soldat if I needed a needle and monk to him at the table. Uh, mister, it's my father. I'm looking for my father. Father? Your father, you said? Yes. Uh, please, sir, have you seen him? What is his name? Like mine, Peter. That is a good needle on the name. No, there's no one named Peter among us. We only a few here. Most of us are still in the Pacific Zone. You had better try asking the Norwegian honor battalion. They are following us. Oh, you dark. And put the look, Planny Yoga. Uh, the Norwegians? Uh, no, Norwegians? Yeah. Norsk, the Norsk 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 He's very small. Haven't seen him for a long time. Will you walk with me? Oh, my father... Blue, blue eyes. You have blue eyes, too. My boy has blue eyes. I heard from my wife only last month. She says his hair is lighter than mine. Uh, you're a very strong little boy to march so fast. When I get home, I'm going to take my little son on long walks by the sea. I'll teach him how to fish... And in the winter time, I'll make him skis. No, I don't understand you. I've got to find my bro father. Oh, come back. Don't run away. Oh, there, Jerry Land. Hello. Well, what's the matter with you, lady? You know what I'm saying, don't you? Yes, sir. Well, then, march along and talk to me, yeah? <laughs> my grandfather and mother saw it was a Jerry. As you see, I know the language with an Australian accent, I expect. <laughs> you do understand what I'm speaking about, don't you? <laughs> yes, sir. Ah. Oh, he'll drop your head off your shoulder, twisting it that way. 
Who in the world are you looking for? My father. Father? Your own? Yes, sir. Among us Australians? Well, my mother said I'd find him today. Oh, did she now? Would you like me to carry you? We're marching a bit fast, you know. <laughs> no, sir. Tell me about your father, Letty. Well, he's not as big as you are. Oh, there's lots like that. And he's got awful blue eyes. Oh, there's some of us with blue eyes. And he wears glasses. Ones with gold rims. Oh, then your mother was wrong, lad. Now, what of us in this honor squad that's wearing glasses? That one here. No, no, please. Oh, I'll lift you up so you can see for yourself. Yeah. There. Look, there's a couple of hundred of us in this first contingent. Australians and New Zealanders. They say they're out of pilot glasses amongst a lot. Please, put me down. Sure. Just want to show you. There, there you are. You better find a sergeant and ask him, eh? Sergeants know everything. What's the matter, young one? Lost? What would you say? Are you lost? Marching along crying? Where are you headed for? You, you speak our language so well. Why not? Henry Henry's the name. A couple of generations ago, it might have been Hans Heinrich. Hey, you look pretty tired. No. All right, no. Like the marching? No. And you're lost? No. Well, maybe I don't under understand the language as well as I think, but he seemed to be saying nothing but no. <laughs> Great day, isn't it? Must be even for you. Did you see those bombers before? You know who was in them? Flyers in the hospitals. Yep. R's and the RAF and the RCAF. The Poles and the Dutchmen and the Free French. All those who'd lost their arms or their legs or even their sight clearing the way for us fellas. They let them fly over first. Yeah, it's a great day. My grandfather sure never would have believed this. Me, marching down under Den Linden, talking German to a little fellow like you. The guys in the ranks alongside of me, there's no use talking to them. They're too excited to even talk about girls, and that's... That's really being excited. Hey, look, boy. Look up, here come some more planes. Isn't that a sight? Cargo planes. A million guys camped around here. We gotta eat, you know. Say, you hungry, boy? I got some iron rations left. Yeah. No. Here they are. No. <laughs> no again, huh? Oh, so that's it. You're one of those children, huh? Raised on Heil Hitlers and weaned on the blood of inferior races, huh? That is not true. What's not true, fella? You march along. Why? Because you like marching. 
Whether it's our soldiers or yours, just as long as you can march. That is not true. I am looking. For whom? Your Fuhrer? Haven't you heard what happened to him? I don't care. I know? I don't care. Say, you're all worn out. How about a lift? No. All right, no. all right. I'm just asking you. Your short legs, I don't see how you do it. Why are you running alongside of me? You're a sergeant. Sure, sure. Y- you know? Oh, sure. Sergeants know everything. That's what he said. Hmm? And you know. You know. Oh, sure. Sure, I know everything. I can tell you what they're... What they're gonna do with Garing and Gebbles and Little Musso, but I won't. Because it doesn't interest me one little bit. All I know is that... Right now, I'm marching down the Broadway of Berlin. Even if... Well, I've been trying to explain to you. I've got to find him. I'm sorry, lad. There's no such man here. I'm right on the sidewalk watching you countrymen know that I'm here. Yes, there are a million guys like me. Next time any of the old boys start planning another little raiding party over their beer, they're not gonna not gonna get very far. Because your people are gonna remember this day. Because we march through. Uh, sure, boy, I know all the answers, but here's the most important one. As soon as this march is over, I'm... I'm heading home. <laughs> yes, sir, nothing will ever get me out of Cincinnati again. Because I earned the right to turn in my uniform. I helped win this ball game, and... Now we're... Oh, we're marching under the goalposts, and... For me, the game is all over. So if you're tired, boy, how about a ride on the shoulder of the the prize sergeant of the winning team? What's the matter, boy? Don't you know what I'm talking about? You haven't told me. Told you what? My father. Where is my father? Your father? They said you would know. Where is he? Well, I... How should I know? They said you'd know. They said... Yeah? 
Well, believe me, I... I can't know personally what's happened to every Nazi. Nazi? No. No, my father was a good man. He was a German. German? Yes. German. But not a Nazi. That's why he must be here. With you. Look, boy, I, I don't know But I'm what... telling you, listen to me, I'm telling you. Peter, his name is Peter like my name. And he's not as big as you and has blue eyes and, and tells very funny stories. He can read faster than anybody in the whole world. And he writes books with beautiful words. No. Not a Nazi, mister. They took him away. Oh. When? Uh, I don't know... Ever, ever so long ago, before the war. What's that? Yeah. Before the war, they took away all his books and burned them outside. Then they came for him, and just before he went, he told me he'd be with you. Honest? How could he? He do? said. He said. He said. I, I will be back, Peter. You will find me when three men march through Berlin again. And, and my mama says, you're free men, and you're marching. So, so, please, mister, there's my father. <laughs> All right, boy. All right. I'm so tired. My father... Come on. Come on up with you. Where is he? Don't worry, boy. He's here. Where? Well, he's... He's all around you. Huh? Look ahead. And behind you. You hear them marching? Yes. Well, there what your father said. Free men marching. He's with them and we'll find them for you. Will you please? Yeah, boy, yeah. We're marching, all right. What I said before, I guess I... I guess I didn't mean that quite. We're not marching just to march or to... or to frighten or to fill our chests. I guess maybe we're here to help. Help all those who fought in their own way against the... against the devils just as hard as we fought. Lean back, Peter. You can rest. We'll take care of you. Whatever else has got to be done, we'll do it.
Ladies and gentlemen, you have just heard V-Day, written and directed by Art Obler, and based on a theme suggested by a statement of the President of the United States. been the final in a special series of plays presented by the Hollywood Writers Mobilization in cooperation with the Blue Network and the Hollywood Victory Committee. In the cast tonight, Frank Lovejoy played the American soldier and Tommy Cook the boy. With them in the cast in the order of their appearance were Ben Alexander, Mercedes McCambridge, Lou Merrill, Joseph Kearns, Hans Conried, Philip Van Sant, Eric Rolfe, and George Sorrell. The original music was written and conducted by Jerome Moross. Sound, Monty Fraser and Betty Boyle. And now, a few parting words from the chairman of the Hollywood Writers' Mobilization, Mr. Robert Rawson. Ladies and gentlemen, the Hollywood Writers' Mobilization, as you may know, is a voluntary journeying together of the writing guilds here on the West Coast for the winning of the war and the peace to come. Nineteen weeks ago, we were given the opportunity to bring to you, through the medium of radio drama, the ideas which we felt would contribute most to an understanding of the fundamental issues which concern us all. This was a new and, and unique venture in radio history, and it now comes to what we believe is a successful conclusion. To the many of you who have written us in appreciation of the series, a return word, of thanks. Thanks also to the other organizations which have helped in the building of these programs. The Hollywood Victory Committee, the Office of War Information, the Writers' War Board, and the wonderful cooperation of the Blue Network Company. Among our own group, we wish to thank the 12 members of the editorial committee, headed by Howard Estabrook and the producer-director of all the broadcasts, Arch Obler. Until we meet again, Speaking for the Screen Publicists Guild, the Screen Readers Guild, the Los Angeles Chapter of the Newspaper Guild, the Independent Publicists Guild, the Radio Writers Guild, and the Screen Writers Guild, good day and goodbye. And now the orchestra brings you a medley of songs of the United Nations. <laughs> Speaking, the Free World Theater came to you from Hollywood. V-Day, the great Arch Obler in the summer of 1943, envisioning what victory might be like in his series Free World Theater. It came to you from the big broadcast and from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. It's obvious from that Arch Obler play that even in the middle of the war, with the outcome very much in doubt, there was an effort to make clear that not all Germans were Nazis, 
and that there would be charity toward the vanquished people of that country at the war's end. We mention that because today is German-American Day, and there have been celebrations all over America, many of them in public parks named for Karl Schutz, the German immigrant who became an important ally of Abraham Lincoln, and he was a champion of the anti-slavery movement and of civil service reform. It's interesting that even with the war still going on, but with victory very much in sight, a big-time network radio show would pay tribute to the courage, intellect, and tenacity of a German who became a celebrated German-American. The show was called The Story of a Boy Named Carl, and it was broadcast by NBC on February 16, 1945, and the series We Came This Way. The NBC University of the Air, a public service of the National Broadcasting Company and its affiliated independent stations, presents another chapter in the historical series, We Came This Way. Tonight we hear the story of a boy named Carl. Liberty is like a great ocean, with many rivers flowing down to it. Sometimes the rivers start as a tiny stream, which widens and gathers momentum as it rushes on. Sometimes it gushes out of the earth in a great flood and sweeps all before it. We're in Victorian London at its most Victorian. The year, 1852. Dickens and Thackeray are in the flush of their first success. There are plans for a crystal palace, which shall be a permanent monument to peace, with exhibits of every nation's handicrafts and industries. In a flat in Chelsea, a party is in progress. But the conversation is in German, not English. Anything German, of course, is quite the vogue. For is not the prince consort, adored husband of the beloved young queen, a German? In the music room, a slight young man of 23 with quantities of wavy brown hair and the most penetrating dark brown eyes, is seated at the square piano fort, his fingers flying. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Uh, something from the homeland now, eh, Carl? Uh, presently, Professor Kinkle, presently, but... Surely you've had enough. Oh. enough for me. My name is Carl. And I'm Margareta. Margareta. What a beautiful name. As Victor Hugo says, a woman's name should end on a vowel and sound like a benediction. I should like to improvise on it. Margareta. Margareta. What a charming compliment. Did you not feel me, Margareta, drawing you like a magnet from the moment we were introduced tonight? Hoping you would come and lean on the piano. 
so I could look up at you. Gottfried, our young couple have taken a fancy to each other. Your instinct is right, Johanna. But then, it always is. Now I know the reason for this party. What a handsome <laughs> pair they make, Professor Kinkle. The very flower of German... Hush, everybody. We mustn't make them self-conscious. These first delicate approaches wither at a touch. <laughs> if we were to shout from the housetops, they wouldn't hear us. They are absorbed in each other. Oh, to be young. That's strange. So melancholy. It goes straight to my heart. It is the music of exile, Margarita. You too. And you? Yes. My brother and I were heart and soul in the 1848 revolution. We had a narrow escape. Then you're one of us. Yes. Exiles like you. Hmm. Poor little revolution that didn't prove a thing. Surely it accomplished something. Oh, yes. A lot of good progressive Germans were exiled. Or so disheartened they left their homeland. So you and I meet here. Thank you, London, for introducing me to Margarita. get involved in the revolution? Why, I was in school, the University of Bonn. Seems so long ago. At Cologne. Then you studied with the Herr Professor. That was my good fortune. Oh, you must be the young man who rescued Professor Kinkle from prison. Saved his life. I owe him more than life. He gave me an ideal to live for. Freedom? For all men. He probably echoed a wish already in your heart. Strange, you should say that. Why, even when I was a child, I'll have to explain first. You see, my grandfather was a farmer in charge of accounts estates, so I happened to be born in a castle. Amusing, isn't it? I think it's charming. A revolutionary born in a castle. Oh, I wasn't born a revolutionary. Or was I? I'm not quite sure. I remember one little instance, probably of no importance. Oh, tell me anyway. Well, there was an old shoemaker in our village. Everybody called him Master George. I couldn't have been more than ten when one day I... Just a few more nails and your boots are finished, Carl. How can you mend them, Master George, when... When I'm so nearly blind? <laughs> my fingers can see. I feel my way along like that. I feel things. What things? Well, there's a boy, for instance. I'm just getting to know him. Uh, what's his name? Adam. He's an orphan, works in our stables. Oh, yes. What is it you feel about him? I feel that he wants the same things I do. I think he'd like to go to school. And if you're wrong? He'll do what I tell him. Though the Count says I'm giving him ideas above his station. That's silly. Adam's a boy, like me. Why shouldn't he learn things? Perhaps the Count is right, and you shouldn't interfere with another person's life. You don't know what it may lead to. It's bound to be something better than cleaning out a stable. And uh, what are you going to do about it? I don't know. I've got to feel it through. The Count has been good to you and your family. You might make things uncomfortable for your grandfather. I'd be sorry for that. And your mother? Oh, my mother. 
I'd feel terrible if she... You see, it costs something to put up a fight. But I've got to do this for Adam. You would, wouldn't you? What I would do and what you would do are two different things. But every man has a right to think for himself. Every man has a right to think for himself. For himself. Playing is a release for you, isn't it? I must find some outlet. Nothing as beautiful as music. There is love. Yes. There is love. Carl, you spoke of your family. My father is a school teacher. An intellectual, then? In a way, perhaps. But I was more influenced by my uncle Ferdinand. He was a disciple of Voltaire. Voltaire? Why, I grew up on him, Carl. Really? The old champion of personal liberty. Yes. I wholly disapprove of what you say. And, and will w- defend to the death your, your right, right to, to say, say it. <laughs> <laughs> Think of Voltaire saying that almost a hundred years ago. Why, it sounds like us, Margarita. Yes. Only, he must always have known where he was going. While you only know why? I'm afraid you've guessed it. But you're very determined. Well, I never want to be second when I can be first. You're a born leader. I see it in your eyes. And when I look into your eyes, your beautiful eyes. You should have heard my mother just before I had to go to Rashtan. You know, I joined the Revolutionary Army in 1848. So you left the university? Yes. It was Germany's great opportunity. And mine. It certainly seemed to be, anyway. Well, Metternich had fled from Austria... And the Second Republic had been established in France. And our Germany had granted the people a constitution. Not all of the people, Margarita. The working man had no rights at all. So, Professor Kinkle inspired a lot of us students to get into action. You must have hated to give up your career. The search for freedom is my career. Did you realize how dangerous it really was? Well, I can't say we weren't warned. But my mother called me in one day and said... My son... I hear that the Prussians are marching on Rastatt now. Yes. I promised Professor Kinkel I'd go. I'm taking Adam with me. Adam's only your servant. He couldn't save you. But if you can't get back... I must take that chance, Mother. It may mean prison. Yes. Very well, my son. Here is your sword. Take it. And use it with honor. Well, Adam, we'll know in a few moments what it is to face a firing squad. At least we... we die together, Master Carl. You might have escaped. And... and leave you, sir? (laughs) How could I face your mother? Oh, if only I hadn't fallen asleep. I did my best to waken you, sir. Soldiers have slept before and found the enemy upon them. You'd worked all night long. That's no excuse. I... I think they're coming for us, Master Carl. Yes. They're coming for us.
Follow me, prisoners. Where they're taking us, Adam? Outside the town, sir. Uh, stick close to me. I have an idea. Escape? I know the countryside well. Well, what about that hedge? It covers the entrance to the sewer. Now, quick, sir, this way. Sink into the hedge until the others pass, Master Cower. to have missed us. Oh, thank heaven. Amen. Now, this sewer leads directly to the Rhine. Here's the entrance. What luck! One of the old brick sewers. And nearly five feet high. Here, I'd better go first. There. Now, it's deeper here. Be careful, Master Carl. Be careful. Walking humpback makes it seem longer. Uh, oh, how's your strength holding out, sir? I'm not done for yet, Adam. Do I... Do I hear rain? Sounds like... Yes, it's pouring down. And the way the water's beginning to come in, we'll soon be able to swim. If it fills up, we'll drown. Or be washed right into the rain. Oh, oh there's sure to be a grating at the end. Look out for the rat. Uh, this rain ought to make our getaway easy. If we reach the river, water's rising awfully fast. Oh, Master Carl. Save your energy, Adam. Don't talk. Excuse me, sir. I only meant... Look. Light ahead. Oh, Dad. We'll have to go back, Master Carl. disappointment that must have been. Perhaps I shouldn't tell all this to a sensitive girl like you. No, please go on. I wish everyone could know what it cost to fight for freedom. Well, when we got back to the other end of the sewer, we hid in the loft of a small barn. We expected to creep out to find food at dusk, but as we were about to start down the ladder... Don't go down, Master Carl. I hear Prussians. We'll have to lay low until we know what they do. Ah, 
It's a poor shelter, but it must serve. This is enemy territory. The farmers will poison our horses unless we set guard. Orderly. Yes, sir. Bring in the horses. Yes, sir. Tonight you will keep watch. Yes, sir. I'll send someone to relieve you in the morning. By rights, we should have searched this place. This door is the only way in or out. There's no window in the hayloft? No, I noticed as we rode up. Well, fortunately, it's only a week's stay. I guess we can put up with it. Oh, we can't get out tonight, sir. We'll try in the morning. These Prussians are so thorough, I'm afraid our chances are pretty slim. When, when they bring the other horses in, I may be able to slip out. You'd be shot at sight. But you can't live through it, sir. A week without food or water. Others have. So can we. Master Carl? Oh. And so begins the third day. How do you feel, Master Carl? Same as you, Adam. My throat's raw from the hay dust. Do you... Do you notice anything strange, sir? This silence? I believe they've gone. Gone? Oh, I... I feel so weak. Uh, I'll go down and get some food. Wait! They may not have gone very far. I'll bring up water from the trough of my hat. Water. A gift from God. Master Carl! Master Carl! Quiet, Adam. Here's an apple the horses didn't eat. Apple. Excellent. I'm coming down. Uh, Be careful, Master Carl. Be careful. Ah, there. Uh, Now, drink the water first. Slowly. Thank you. Here's your hand. No, I, I want you to have it all. No, take it. No. I never thought half an apple would taste so good. Uh, on guard, sir. Blasted Prussians. Caught it on my farm. Here's a friend, Adam. The farmer. Who are you? Friends of Germany. You speak the right words, but you're dirty. Face is covered with stubble. No wonder. We came out of the sewer. We were trying to escape. We had to turn back. We've been hiding in the loft these three days. And they didn't think to look in the loft. We've had neither food nor water. Come, dinner's hot on the table. But is it safe for us to remain here? For a few hours. Then you must go. It's a criminal offense to harbor us. We were listed for execution. I'll risk it. I can't leave my farm to fight for the revolution. You fight by helping us. Tell me. Can you lure away the guard at the other end of the sewer and remove the grating? Well, the Prussians like my home-brewed beer. If I can, what then? Have you a boat? My neighbor has. You can count on him. The fight must go on. Oh, Carl. Yes? Carl, that was wonderful. It was all for nothing. You were clever and brave. Where was I clever? Where was I brave? 
this much I'm sure of. I'll only be happy fighting to make the whole world free. I know, Carl. But tell me, how did you rescue Professor Kinkoff? Well, I had gotten to Switzerland. I was writing articles for the revolutionary papers in Germany. You're a writer, too? <laughs> I'm afraid I'm always writing. Or talking. So? Well, I heard Professor Kinkle was in prison in Germany. And you dared to go back? Oh, Carl. There are always friends to help. Unexpected friends. There was a turnkey at the prison who proved a friend. This way, sir. I have moved Professor Kinkle to a more comfortable cell. Very kind of you. It's the least I could do after failing you last night. You did your best? I'm only the turnkey in the prison, but a patriot, too. And one of the best. Why, without your help, we couldn't even attempt the rescue. There's too many guards about last night. Oh, here we are, sir. Carl? Yes, Professor Kinkle. Talk quickly, sirs, while I keep watch. Well, this cell is on the side. Good, I have a plan. Carl, do not risk it again. You are too valuable to the cause, sir, to remain in prison. But it may mean both your lives if we fail. We won't fail tonight. Oh, sirs, it's not my life. I'd give that gladly. But my family, I, I can't sacrifice them. If you are caught, our comrades will see that your family is cared for. I believe you, sir. What is your plan? We must work fast. I can't feel the rope. Here it is, sir. Firmly secured. Oh, I, I have it now. Oh, good. Here, let me help you through the window. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Now. now. Oh, there. there. Now, slide down yeah. quickly, sir. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm holding this end. Hurry. Hurry, sir. The guard. At last. We must run for it. This doorway. Did he see our shadows? I don't think so. He would have fired. How long before we sail? An hour. My friends who've been hiding me have arranged everything. Good. We'll go first to Edinburgh and then to London. After going through all that, no wonder Professor Kinkle is discouraged about Germany. Not only Germany. Here it is, 1852, and all over Europe the liberal movement is suppressed. The French Republic is gone. Mazzini fought in vain to unite Italy. 
Kosuth could not free Hungary. And here you are in London, Carl. Stranded. Useless. So you've given up the search for freedom? Oh, no. Never. Splendid. You know your destiny. Oh, yes. You haven't found the way to reach it. That's all. But you believe I will? From my heart. Thank you for giving me new courage. Margarita. Yes? This may be the moment I've waited for all of my life. And all of mine, perhaps. Tell me. There is room in your heart for me. Room for you. And for your dream, Carl. Then I can accomplish miracles. I feel that I'm waking from a sleep and rising refreshed and strong. I'll never doubt the vision again. For you will share it with me. Always. Always, Carl. And now, we must make plans. <laughs> you are a man of immediate action. If his lady provides the inspiration, her knight can do no less than act <laughs> upon it. A quick wit, too. <laughs> oh, Carl, you will be a great public speaker. I hope to be. And I want to write, too. Here in England, speech is free. England has been free for a thousand years. She does not need us. Then you must go where you are needed. We must go. You and I together, Margarita. Yes, together. But Germany, who needs us most, has exiled us. But there is a nation growing up, young and strong and free. The United States? Yes. The American people rule themselves. They are free to live their lives and express their thoughts. A nation of destiny, Carl. Can we help to shape that destiny? We can. We will. Carl? This was Carl Schurz, great American patriot of German birth. In August of the year in which they met, 1852, Carl Schurz and his young bride, Margareta, sailed for New York. Did they realize their dreams? Well, how is this for accomplishment? Carl Schurz, friend of Abraham Lincoln and fighter with him for the abolition of slavery. Carl Schurz, Brigadier General in the United States Army. Carl Schurz, United States Senator. Carl Schurz, Secretary of the Interior of the United States of America. Carl Schurz, for whom Carl Schurz Park in New York is named. At all times, the fighter, the orator, the writer for the cause of justice and liberty. Did he ever see his beloved Germany again? Well, when he visited Germany in 1867, he was heaped with honors. This boy who had fled as an exile 19 years before. It takes a man with a sure sense of destiny, with courage far beyond the ordinary, and with an extraordinary cleverness to find his way through the dark and mysterious terrors 
of the journey to freedom. Carl Schutz was one of us, a typical American. We came this way. With this 20th broadcast, the NBC University of the Air completes the first series of We Came This Way. The program will be resumed at a later date, which has yet to be announced. In the days that lie ahead, every American needs to know the facts about our struggle for a democratic way of life. To give you more information about the facts dramatized in this series, and to suggest further reading to you, NBC has prepared an especially written handbook. We shall be happy to send this interesting book to you on request. Send 25 cents to cover the cost of printing and mailing to We Came This Way, Post Office 30, Station J, New York 27, New York. That's a little complicated, so I'll repeat it again. Send to We Came This Way, Post Office 30, Station J, New York 27, New York. Tonight's program was under the direction of Homer Heck. Original music was composed by Dr. Roy Shield and conducted by Mr. Joseph Galicchio. Special piano facts by Franz Fowler. In tonight's cast, you heard Clifton Utley as narrator, Lorette Philbrandt as Margareta, and Vincent Pelletier as Carl. Others in the cast were Alma Platts, Catherine Payne, Ralph Camargo, Charles Eggleston, Gilbert Ferguson, Philip Lord, Tom Post, Fred Sullivan, and Leonard Smith. Remember to watch the radio column of your newspaper for the return of We Came This Way. is the National Broadcasting Company. The story of a boy named Karl, German revolutionary and U.S. Senator Karl Schutz, from the series We Came This Way in the Last Winter of the War in 1945, and from the big broadcast coming your way from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Our co-producer is Jill Arold Bailey. Our audio engineer is Douglas Bell. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. I don't know if you saw A Star is Born last year, the fourth version of that movie, starring Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, who also directed it. Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson had given us their take on it in 1976, and the most famous version was undoubtedly the 1954 one that starred Judy Garland and James Mason. So last year, I got used to people rolling their eyes and dismissing me, Actually, I'm always used to people rolling their eyes and dismissing me, but this time it was whenever I was asked what my favorite version was, because it's the original 1937 film 
directed by William Wellman, with a screenplay by Dorothy Parker, among others, and Janet Gaynor and Frederick March in the two starring roles. It got an astonishing seven Academy Award nominations, and it won two Oscars. And one of these days, maybe we'll play the Lux Radio Theater adaptation of that movie, starring Ms. Gaynor. She was a marvelous actor, and a great star. We have her tonight in the adaptation of a hit Broadway play from 1930, and she's paired with another underrated movie actor, George Brent. It's from Lux Radio Theater, too, and it was broadcast over CBS on June 26, 1939. Here's Janet Gaynor in a radio adaptation of the English writer Ben Levy's play, Mrs. Moonlight. From Hollywood, California, the Lux Radio Theater presents Janet Gaynor and George Brent in Mrs. Moonlight. Lux presents Hollywood. The Lux Radio Theater comes to you with the good wishes of the makers of Lux Flakes. It's made possible because you buy Lux Flakes so regularly. This year, more than ever, you need Lux because it's a luxable year. Stores are full of the new cotton, smart and crisp as iceberg letters, rayons and silks and many new textures. They'll all stay new-looking longer with Lux. Give them the safe care you give your underthings and stockings. Just one washing failure may wreck a clothes budget, you know. Let me put it this way. It pays in dollars, and it costs only a few cents to use Lux for everything safe in water. Remember, a little goes so far. Lux is thrifty. It's a different type of play we bring you tonight, a most unusual romance of a girl who wished she might never grow old and whose wish came true. Janet Gaynor and George Brent are the stars of Mrs. Moonlight. Louis Silvers directs our orchestra, and Dr. Walter B. Pitkin, author of the famous bestseller, Life Begins at Forty, is our special guest. And now, the producer of the Lux Radio Theater. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Cecil B. DeMille. <laughs> Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. I want to join with Melville Ruick in thanking you for your loyal support. You who listen to this program are partners in the Lux Radio Theater. It's for your pleasure that we produce these plays. It's your preference that helps select them, and your purchases of Lux that make this theater possible. Traveling across the country in connection with the opening of Union Pacific, I met a woman who asked me what she could do to express her thanks for the pleasant evenings that this theater had brought her. I told her the best way to show her appreciation was to buy the products behind the Lux Radio Theater, Lux Toilet Soap and Lux Flakes. Those women in our audience who are not already using these splendid products, and I, I assume there are only a few, will thank me for suggesting their use. And we thank each and every one of you for your loyalty, which makes this theater possible. Some 400 years ago, in a newfound land called Florida, a Spanish explorer, Ponce de Leon, gave up his life on the altar of an age-old quest, the secret of eternal youth. And I doubt if there's anyone in our audience tonight who at some time or other hasn't wondered if there really was some fountain of everlasting youth. This idea has captured man's hope and imagination again and again. Tonight's play, Mrs. Moonlight, is the drama of a woman who finds that secret. A woman who never grows old. But what results from this, the events of our play will tell you. A play starring Janet Gaynor and George Brent, who in real life found the end of their quest here in Hollywood. 
Miss Gaynor is one of that select company of stars who were once Hollywood extras, an achievement not often duplicated. For the odds against the extra are 10,000 to 1, unless that extra has the talent and determination of a Janet Gaynor. When an Irishman arrives in Hollywood, he can't come with a better background than the University of Dublin and that city's famous Abbey Theatre. George Brent, like the romantic ideal of his countrymen, has followed a quest of adventure as a sailor, diamond miner, stoker, blacksmith, sheep herder, and vagabond, a trail that led eventually to Hollywood. He appears through the courtesy of Warner Brothers Studio and is currently starring in The Rains Came for 20th Century Fox. Tonight he plays Tom Moonlight and Janet Gaynor is Sarah as the Lux Radio Theater presents our adaptation of a great Broadway success, Mrs. Moonlight. Midsummer night in England. The year is 1881, almost 60 years ago. In a tiny garden facing on the moors, a lovely young girl stands in a dress of shimmering white. Her face is lifted toward the full round moon, and her eyes are bright and shining, for tomorrow is her wedding day. But a dark cloud steals across the moon's face, and from the west comes the deep rumble of thunder. The girl turns, hearing a step in the shadows behind her. Edith? Edith, is that you? Yes. Whatever are you doing out here at this time of night, Sarah? Looking at the moon and thinking how happy I am. Oh, it's going to rain. Only a summer shower. I don't like it. There's a queer feeling in the air tonight. Have you felt it too? It'll be too bad if it rains tomorrow. Oh, it won't. It couldn't. You mustn't tempt Providence, Sarah. <laughs> I'm not afraid of Providence. I'm not afraid of anything tonight. I'm going to marry Tom Moonlight. And tomorrow, I'll be Sarah Moonlight. Isn't it the most beautiful name? Hmm. Very beautiful. Edith, you like Tom, don't you? Whatever made you think I didn't? Nothing. Only sometimes when I speak of him, you seem to... Oh, nonsense. It's your imagination. You'd better come in now. In a little while. Tom's stopping by to say goodnight. But don't you wait up. My maid of honor must look her best tomorrow, too. My best is only a candle beside you. No one will even notice me. Edith. There's Edith Jones, the bride's cousin. What a pity she didn't inherit the family looks. Edith. What is it? Aren't you happy for me? Oh, you know I am, but perhaps I'm a little sad, too. Well, I'm going in. I don't like storms. Good night, Sarah. Good night. Sarah? Sarah? Yes, Minnie? What is it? I have a little something for you, Miss Sarah. Your wedding present. Oh, Minnie, how sweet. <laughs> you do love me, don't you? I've waited on you since you were three. People grow close with time, I suppose. <laughs> well, aren't you going to open it? My present? But I thought tomorrow... Open it now. It's more fitting somehow. Why? Well, it's a strange gift, child. It's called the Dreard. The Dreard? I'm sure it must be something very wonderful and very Scotch. It's been in my family for hundreds of years. Nobody knows where it came from first, but it's for you. <gasps> A necklace? Oh, Minnie, how lovely. But why is it called the Dread? I don't rightly know, but there's said to be magic in it. Magic? Aye, there's a legend. It's said that there's one wish granted to every owner. One wish that will come true. One wish. 
Sometime you may want something badly, Miss Sarah, with all your heart. It may be that you'll use it then. Sarah? Yes, Edith? Your Tom Moonlight is here. Tom. I got away as soon as I could, darling. Oh, I knew you would. Look, I've had a present already. For Minnie. A necklace? Well, that's beautiful, Minnie. And there's a legend, Tom. It's not to be talked about. Oh. You must get to bed now, Sarah. It's growing late. I won't keep her five minutes. Five minutes, then. Or I'll come get her myself. Oh, Tom. Tom Moonlight. You know I'm very happy. My darling. So happy it frightens me. <laughs> Fasten my necklace. I want to wear it. So you'll be even more beautiful? There. Well, that was close, wasn't it? How still it is after. How unearthly still. Perhaps the gods are standing gaping. Surprised that any mortal could be so lovely. Tom, we must always be as happy as we are now. Nothing must ever change. It never will. Oh, if I could only be sure. You can. Our love will never change. But we'll change. We'll grow old, Tom. You won't like me to look old. I'll always see you just as you are now, Sarah. Just as I married you. As I am now. There, you see? What? Oh, Tom, if you ever stopped loving me, I should die. Stop loving you? When I die, Sarah, and not even then, our love is forever. Oh, it must be. It must be. It's late. Kiss me goodnight. The last time I shall ever have to leave you. The last time. Good night, my darling. Good night. One wish. One wish to every owner. Oh, dread. This is my prayer, that I shall never change, that I shall never grow older. Oh, let me look always, just as I do tonight. It's my youth, he loves. Don't let me lose it. Let me keep it always for him. to do that dusting right under my nose. If Mrs. Moonlight's cousin's coming, I can't have her see dust. Well, why didn't you do it this morning? I was busy elsewhere this morning. Well, if you finish, then run along. Well, don't stand there watching me. After nine years, surely I'm nothing to stare at. I was just thinking that a Scotsman wouldn't forget his wedding anniversary. I did not forget it. Mrs. Moonlight's gift is being delivered any minute. And why aren't you looking after my daughter as you're supposed to do? Do you mean Jane? Well, who in the world do you suppose I mean? She's with her lovely parents, she is. Do you mean Mrs. Moonlight? Who do you suppose I mean? Ah, uh, Minnie, you're a disagreeable old woman. I've been thinking seriously of giving you notice. Ah, uh, away with you. Consider yourself lucky to be living in the same house with us. With us? With Sarah Moonlight and me and we Jane. Oh, creature, answer the bell. <laughs> it's your poor wee gifty, I expect. And it isn't poor and it isn't we. Good afternoon, Minnie. 
It's Mrs. Moonlight's cousin. Good afternoon, Thomas. How are you, Edith? Nicely, thank you. Where's Sarah? She's with Jane. Oh, Minnie, will you please inform Mrs. Moonlight that her cousin is here to go to the band concert with us? She doesn't have to. How are you, Edith, dear? Many happy returns of the day, Sarah. Here's my present. Oh, how nice. What is it? Mm, I'm afraid you won't like it. I'm sure I will. Oh, sure. Oh, I mean, but, but what a lovely one. Yes. I knew you wouldn't like it. Oh, but I do, Edith. No, you don't like it because you think shawls are only for old people. Oh, how absurd. You think too much of your age, both of you. Do you think I do, Edith? Well, since you asked me, yes. You dress too young. Several people have mentioned it. Well, they're just envious. Sarah doesn't dress young. She looks young. Well, put it any way you like. But tell me this. Does Sarah look a day older today than she did at 21 or 20 or even 19? Well, no. But is that a crime? Well, I didn't say so. Do you think so? Well, I don't think it's a crime, but... But it is odd. What do you mean by odd? Just odd. I see. Oh, please, please, Edith. Let, let's forget it. Oh, of course. It was Sarah who asked me. Oh, uh, look, Edith. I got a letter last night from Maud. From your sister Maud? What does she want? She wants to tell me she's just had a baby. Now, why does she think you'd care? She gave up her family when she ran off with that good-for-nothing foreigner. Answer that, Minnie. Is it a boy or a girl, Sarah? A girl. They've named her Joy. Ironically, I presume. Do they still live in Florence? Of course. His work is there. He's an artist. <laughs> Here it is. Here what is? Where did you get that box, Minnie? That's a little present from me, my dear. Oh, Tom, what is it? Well, open it up and see. <gasps> a dress. Oh, and it's beautiful. It's the most beautiful dress in the world. <laughs> Edith, isn't it lovely? And it's a very pretty frock. Oh, I'll be a queen in it. What trinkets will you wear? Yes. Oh, what jewelry? My crystals, Tom? It wants something with a touch of blue. I don't think I have anything blue. Yes, you have, dear. You know, the whatchamacallit, the, the dreard. No. Why, Sarah... What is the dreard? Well, it's a necklace made of turquoise. Minnie gave it to her for a wedding present. Then why not wear it, Sarah? No. But you used to like it when we were first married. She doesn't like it, no. Can't you let the bear on the lawn? We, we'd better be leaving. I'll get my things. What's the matter with her today? I don't understand her. She was perfectly all right until... Until what? Oh, nothing. Only I wish you wouldn't talk about her looks, Edith. It always disturbs her. And well, it might. She ought to do something about it. Do? What can she do? She looks young, that's all. Well, all I can say is, it's very strange. I'm very disappointed this afternoon, but for sure, well, even Edith might have known better. Tom. What is it, dear? I've been meaning to tell you. You must be very, very nice to Edith. Well, I am. Why? You see, she's... Edith's in love with you. Oh, don't be silly. It's true. She always has been. That's why she seems bitter at times. Well, I don't believe it. She probably respects me, but I don't think any more than most other women. <laughs> yes. I suppose they're all in love with you. Except me. You? Why, you adore me, Mrs. Moonlight. I don't. I love you. Dear. Dear Mr. Moonlight. As much as ever. And after nine long years... As much as the first time. Do you remember the first time? Remember? Hmm. You were playing the piano. I was playing this. May I sit beside you, Mrs. Moonlight? 
<laughs> Tom, don't. But I must kiss you. I can't help myself. Mr. Moonlight, what a way for old married people to behave. Old married people. Why, go over and look at that old married lady in the mirror. I look my ears, Tom. You don't, of course. Oh, Tom. And it's my belief that you never will. Oh, please don't say that. Oh, Sarah, you've got to get over that silly fence. Oh, I can't. I'm frightened. Frightened? Supposing... Tom, supposing someone should be born who never really did grow any older. What would happen? Well, she'd probably make a fortune in a freak show. Oh, please be serious. Oh, how can I be serious about such nonsense? But just supposing, what do you think would happen? Well, in olden times, she'd probably have been burned as a witch. And nowadays? Nowadays, we have other ways of dealing with witches. Less crude, perhaps, but just as nasty. Why, Sarah, you're trembling. Tom, once I prayed above all things that I should never grow older. Look older. I thought you'd stop loving me if I did. Now I think you'll stop if I don't. But you will, darling. Of course you'll look older in time. You'd rather I did? Well, yes, I think I would. But there's quite enough that's miraculous about my wife without that. Oh, it sounds foolish when I talk about it to you. But not when I'm alone. Sometimes I feel I'm going mad and can't stand it any longer. You see, it's growing stronger, not weaker. Every year for years, ever since we've been married. Sarah. Oh, do you think I'm just fanciful? That's all. And you'll always believe, whatever happens, that I love you, won't you? Yes, dear. But nothing can happen. In fact, I promise you that in the morning you look 102. Now, come, darling, I think it's time you went to bed. In a little while. I'm not at all sleepy. You'll come up soon? Yes, soon. Then kiss me goodnight. Good night, my darling. And remember, I love you, Mr. Moonlight. Very, very much. He mustn't know, and you must never tell. He must think me dead. Promise. Poor Tom Moonlight. Promise? I promise, if that's the way it must be. Thank you. Goodbye, Minnie. Goodbye. 
Theater, Moonlight. You'll take care of them, won't you? I. Tom and little Jane. Take good care of them. For me. of Mrs. Moonlight, starring Janet Gaynor and George Brent. Act two of Mrs. Moonlight. Seventeen years have passed since the night Sarah Moonlight fled from her family because she knew she could never grow old. Unable to find a trace of her, Tom Moonlight has picked up the broken threads of his life He's been married for many years to Sarah's cousin, Edith, and is enjoying a middle-aged happiness. Jane, the young daughter Sarah left behind her, is now a woman old enough for marriage. One of her suitors, Percy Medling, has come to call. In the living room of the Moonlight home, he leans toward her, a desperate look in his eyes. You're not listening, Jane. Of course I'm listening, but can't you tell me some other time, Percy? I'd rather tell you now, Jane. But we're expecting a guest. Minnie's gone to the station to meet her. Yes, I know, but... It's a brand new cousin. You mean a baby? <laughs> no, silly. She's only a year or two younger than I. They've lived in Italy for years. We've never even seen her. Jane, I'm sorry to interrupt. But if you have a guest coming, I must say what I have to say quickly. Now, as to my present occupation, engineering is quite a respectable occupation, and the firm is well-established and an old one. Furthermore, my father would be regarded by many people as being, so to speak, in a very comfortable position. Percy, are you proposing to me? Well, yes, I was coming to that in a moment. May I advise you, Percy, the next time you want a girl to marry you, just say, Jane, I love you. Unless, of course, her name is Mary. You mean it? No good, then. I'm afraid not, Percy. You see, I don't love you. Oh. I'm very sorry, Percy. Jane, there isn't any other. I mean, you're, you're not in love with someone else, are you? I don't know. But you must have some idea. I mean, well... Willie Rag is coming over a little later. Willie Rag. Oh, I see. That's your guest, Minnie. Only one getting off. Nice-looking young woman, too. Yes. That's her. Sarah. Miss Sarah. How are you, Minnie? Sarah Moonlight. Let me look at you. Come into the light. No. I haven't changed, if that's what you mean. Still young. Still a girl. Only in looks, Minnie. Not in my heart. Oh, my poor darling. Was I right to come? I had to see them again, Tom and Jane. But they won't know me. You promised. They'll think that you're Maud's daughter, Joy, who resembles her aunt, Sarah Moonlight. To them, Sarah Moonlight has been dead for 17 years. And ghosts don't often come back, do they? No. The carriage is over here. How is he, Minnie? Moonlight? 
Oh, he's well. Happy enough, I dare say. Edith makes him a good wife, doesn't she? Mm, yes. Yes. She was always in love with him. Tell me about yourself. Where do you live? In Vienna now. I was seven years in Florence, then eight in Paris. People begin to wonder after a few years, so I have to keep moving on. You, uh, you have money enough? Mm, money enough for me. My music helps. Pupils and concerts. And it's good for me. There's no time to feel sorry. Or to think of him. And Jane, Minnie. What is she like? My Jane. Like you, mostly. I suppose she'll be marrying soon. Very likely. There are two young men. Very nice young men, I hope. Percy Midling is. And uh, Willie Rag. Well, <laughs> him you can judge for yourself. He'll be at the house most likely. Late, Willie. The third time this week. Late again. Willie left his little Jane, but Willie soon came back again. <laughs> I made that up on my way. Jane, you haven't kissed me yet. You haven't asked me. Please, Miss Moonlight, may I kiss you? Yes, you may. Twice. Once. Twice. <laughs> Where have you been? I've been to Newmarket. Oh, have you got the job? No, but I probably shall, or something else. Oh, Willie. Now, there's nothing to worry about. Oh, but there is. You know how Father feels. He says you're irresponsible. Irresponsible? I? It's blasphemous. Oh, I say, he can't hear me, can he? <laughs> no. Good. And if he won't give his consent, I'll marry you without it. Oh, Willie, please be serious. But I am. Oh, we thought you were alone, Jane. Come in, Father. Come in, Mother. How are you, Mr. Vance? Very well, ma'am. Good evening, sir. Good evening. Has many returned yet, Jane? No, Father. Well, I think I'll meet her on the road. Oh, please, sir. If I might have a word with you, sir. A word with me? I think you know what it's about. I have an inkling. I'm going to marry your daughter, sir. Oh, yes? Oh, uh, Father, Willie doesn't mean it quite like that. He... Mr. Rag is a bit blunt. I believe in speaking out, sir. A fine quality, and I believe in it, too. I also believe, young man, that at the present time you have no position or any prospect of one. Under those conditions, I don't quite see how you can speak of marriage. I regret your disapproval, sir, but I must tell you that I won't let it stand in my way. Really? Willie, don't say any more. Father, you don't understand. Mm, evidently not. Come, wait. Minnie is here. I'll speak to you later, Mr. Rag. Well, why doesn't she come in? Minnie! Your visitor is here, Mr. Moonlight. Come in, Miss Joy. Good evening. Oh. Why? Why, she's... She's the image of... Tommy, don't. How are you, my dear? I'm very well, thank you. I am your Aunt Edith. And this is... This is... Mr. Moonlight. Yes. We're... We're very happy to see you, George. Thank you. This is my stepdaughter, Jane. I've been looking forward to your coming. Jane. What? What's the matter, dear? Well, Mother, she's so pale. Well, she's tired out. She's had a long journey. Yes. Yes, a, a very long journey. Sarah? Yes? It's almost time for your train, Sarah. I know, Minnie. The days have passed quickly, Sarah. Too quickly. Oh, there was so much I wanted to do. Now it's all slipped away from me. Oh, Minnie. She must be happy. My Jane must be happy. If I knew she was going to be, I could leave in peace. You're talking of Willie Rag now. Yes. 
Why can't she see Minnie? Why doesn't she know? And why am I so powerless to help her? I'm her mother, Minnie, and I can't lift my hand. A half an hour past nine. You'd best be making ready. The night train is always on time. The night train. I left once before at night. Long ago. Hush, my darling. You will come again. After another 20 years. Oh, what's the use, Minnie? If only to see us all. To see you all growing old without me. To feel left behind. Sarah, my darling. Joy, may I see you? Jane, of course. Come in. It's rather private. Minnie, will you leave us alone? Very well. What is it, Jane? Well, it's about Willie. I want you to talk to Father. Tell him what you what you think of him. But what I think of Willie is really very much what your father thinks of him. Joy, but can't you see what Willie is? Yes. I've been worried that you can't. Oh, really, Joy? I thought you at least would be on my side. My dear, I am on your side. Well, that's what Mother says. But middle-aged people have forgotten what love is. Not always, Jane. Are you very disappointed in me? No, but I thought you'd understand, that's all. Jane, will I see you before I go? Of course. Why do you ask? Well, it's a late train. I thought you might be tired. No, I'll wait up to see you go. Thank you, Jane. Hello, Jane. Is that you? No. Oh, Miss Joy. Do you want a Mr. Rag? I'll call her down. No, 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 no. Not, not yet. Come down yourself. Oh, this is a bit of luck. Finding you alone, I mean. I'm afraid I'm rather busy. Oh, I say, I've been waiting three weeks for a chance to talk to you. You mustn't dodge me now. Not on your last night. Do you know, Joy, do you know that you're a very beautiful creature? You really think so? Oh, now, don't be modest. If I didn't have Jane, I might go clear over my head. Oh, thank you. May I sit beside you? Certainly. Why? Well, why does a fellow ever want to sit beside a pretty woman? Usually because he wants to kiss her. That's why. Why did you do that? I don't know. I've been wanting to ever since I first saw you. Are you angry? I'm not sure yet. Have you forgotten, Jane? Of course not. I adore Jane, but... But what? Well, hang it all, I'm not married yet, you know. And if you are angry about my kissing you, I can only say... I'm sorry. I didn't say I was angry. I may not be angry at all. You know, Joy, you're a strange girl. Yes, I am. You're not like any of the girls I've known. You're different. You... I want to see you again, Joy. You must let me. I'm going to Paris. I'll follow you. Where will you be? What address? Please tell me. Numero 82. And the rest? Rue d'Algier. Rue d'Algier. Haven't you better write it down? Do you think I could forget it? Joy, listen, I can't leave tonight, but I'll follow you. Look for Would me. Would it be rude uh, if I asked to come in? Uh, uh, Jane, I didn't hear you. Perhaps I walked too softly. Believe me, I didn't mean it. Uh, uh, I was just telling Joy goodbye. Was that it? Of course. <clears throat> well, I really must run. Goodbye, Joy. And goodbye, Jane. Darling. See you tomorrow. Night. Jane, 
Jane, dear. Don't come near me. Don't touch me. You're vile. Jane, don't say that. You are. You're vile. You're unclean. I heard you. I heard everything you said. Now go on. Go to Paris. Wait for him there. He'll make you very happy, I'm sure. But at least he hasn't a chance to make you unhappy. You see Don't now... speak to me. I hate you. I hate you. Jane. Father, make her go. Make her leave. Get her away from here. Jane, what is it? I can't bear the sight of her, I tell you. Are you mad? She wanted Willie. Well, she may have him. And you needn't worry any longer about me, Father. I'll marry Percy just as you wanted. I'll marry Percy Middling and be miserable all my life. Now are you satisfied? Joy, I'm sorry for this. I'm sure she's just upset, that's all. Oh, please don't be polite. Well, I'd better leave. I'll miss my train. Are you disappointed in me? I don't even know the fact. Jane told you. I stole in her young man. But I didn't want him. I'd rather have Jane's love than anything in the world. Then why did you do it? You were against the marriage. Certainly I was. I knew they'd never be happy. So did I. Did you? And this talk about Paris? He wanted to follow me. I gave him the wrong address, a made-up one. I only wanted Jane to see what he was really like. Why, you... you funny child. When Jane is over this, will you tell her what I told you? Of course I will. Promise? I promise. Mr. Moonlight, are you happy? Yes, of course. Why? I knew you were, really. I just wanted to hear you say it. What a strange, strange girl you are, Joyce. You're the second person who said that tonight. Oh, there's my carriage. I don't want to go back. I don't want to go yet. You may stay if you want to. No, I can't. Goodbye, Mr. Moonlight. Goodbye. I shall miss you very much, Joyce. You're very much like... Like someone I once knew. Someone I loved. Dear Mr. Moonlight, will you kiss me goodbye? Goodbye, dear. Come soon again, won't you? This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. In Hollywood again, we continue our play, Mrs. Moonlight, starring Janet Gaynor and George Brent. have passed. Long years which have gradually dimmed the remembrance of Sarah Moonlight and Joy. It's the present day, and many changes have come to the moonlight. Edith is dead, and Jane and Percy Middling, married for 20 years, live on with old Tom Moonlight. Meanwhile, in the cities of Europe, a strange figure moves silently, always alone, always young, never changing in a changing world. In a music school in Bucharest, this strange girl, known only as Miss Sarah, faces the master in his room. Miss Sarah, how long have you been with us now? Twelve years. 
12 years. Yeah. Have not realized it was that long. Sir, what I have to say is not easy. But some of the other teachers, they, they feel... They feel there's something strange about me. Yeah. Of course, I know that it is ridiculous, but... Uh... Oh, don't say any more. I'll leave in the morning. Oh, oh, no, no, Miss Sarah, you... It's happened before. It'll happen again. What is it about you? What is it? Uh, where will you go, Miss Sarah? Oh, I don't know. To Paris, Berlin, Naples. It's not easy to find work in strange cities. They're not strange to me. And you want to work here, Miss Sarah? Uh, Miss Sarah, haven't I seen you somewhere? I don't remember. Uh, it's a long time ago. I don't remember. I am sorry, but I have nothing for you. Good day, senor. The concert season in Paris is well booked, Miss Sarah. If will you go name? I am called Miss Sarah. Miss... Of course I remember you. You played here in 1904. You... Oh, that is impossible. Yes. Yes, you've mistaken me for someone else, monsieur. What you say you are... No. Good day, monsieur. Oh, do you want to teach my daughter? Yes. I can give your daughter lessons every day. Just as you gave them to me? What? You gave me lessons, too? No. You did? And I was again... Oh, no. You... I remember. I remember. Miss Taylor. No. 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 And the ticket was to Vienna, Fräulein? Yes, to Vienna. I... No. No, I want to go to England. To London. Yeah, Fräulein. First class? No, third, please. Third class to London. Peter tomorrow, Peter? Right, you are. Thanks for the lift. Oh, it's a pleasure. I say, Peter, is that somebody waiting for you? Where? Is that woman by your steps, looking up the house. I don't know who she is. I've noticed her hanging around the house several times the last few days. Well, why don't you ask her what she wants? I believe I will. Goodbye, Greg. Goodbye. <laughs> I beg your pardon, but are you looking for someone? No. Not exactly. You look ill. Oh, would you like to come in for a moment? This is my house. Your house? What is your Christian name? Why, why, Peter. Peter. Peter Middling. Your father is Percy Middling, and your mother is Jane. How did you know that? And your grandfather. Is he dead? No, he's not dead. Oh. Oh, here. Here, here wait a moment. Oh, don't go away. Why, you're cold and ill. Come inside and get warm. Oh, no. No, no, I must not. Nonsense. A hot drink will do you good. Come along now. Will you wait here a moment? Thank you. Mother. Peter, come in. I, I say, Mother, I've, uh, I, I've brought a woman into the house. Peter. Oh, no, no, listen. I, I think she's ill. She looks it. Who is the woman? I haven't the faintest idea, Father. But she knew my name and seemed to know all about me. He knew your name? Oh, hello, Minnie. Why, yes. Who do you suppose it is, Minnie? I, I don't know. How could I? I'll go and have a look at her. 
I suppose she's a very beautiful Peter. No. She's rather ragged and... and young like a girl. But her eyes are too big and... Well, there's something strange about her. Come in, please. Thank you. Good evening. How do you do? Come and sit down by the fire. Are you my... Are you Peter's mother? Yes, I am. Yes. I thought you were. You're very lovely. Would you like something hot to drink? And that is Percy Nibbling. How do you know that? You mustn't ask me questions. Please sit down. Thank you. Well, I'm all right, really. It's just that lately I've had a kind of pain here in my heart. Peter, come and sit near me. You've got to tell me all about yourself. Are you at Oxford or Cambridge? Oxford. Like your grandfather. How did you know that? Who are you? Poor puzzled James. I'm just an old lady, my dear. Who's rather come down in the world. Oh, why, you're a girl. That... That picture on the table. It's Tom Moonlight, isn't it? Yes, it is. Was it just taken? This picture? That? Oh, that was taken a good ten years ago. May I see him? Oh, I'm afraid not. He's very feeble. His memory's gone and he really doesn't recognize people. He hasn't recognized any of us for months. Poor Mr. Moonlight. He hasn't really been the same since my grandmother died. You... Your grandmother. You mean Edith? Yes. Oh, I say, if, if you're an old friend of grandfather's, perhaps you could come tomorrow and see him. He can see him now. Minnie, you brought him down? Father. Tom. Tom Moonlight. Oh. Who is that over there? Father. He doesn't know you, Mother. He's staring at her. Oh, my dear. I've been asleep. Yes, Tom. Has Edith gone? Edith? Yes, dear. She's gone. Well, that's good. I'm worried about Edith. Worried about what you told me this evening. I've been thinking it over, and I believe you're right. Edith is in love with me. Of course she is, darling. We all are. Uh, including you, eh? A little while ago, it was all. Except you. Was it, Mr. Moonlight? Perhaps I've grown older since then. Have you indeed? Well, I'll tell you a secret. I never believed you. You love me very much indeed. Clever Mr. Moonlight. Grandfather, who is he? Who is he? Why, that's my wife, young man. Who are you? I? I'm Peter. Well, I don't know you, sir. And I don't much want to. Grandfather, what is your wife called? She's called Sarah, of course. Sarah Moonlight. Percy, he thinks it's his first wife. What are they saying? Don't they like my Sarah? Well, of course they do. Especially me. I think she's lovely. Well, she is, too. And what's more... She doesn't change. Did you know that? She doesn't change. Now, what's that about changing? She's worried about that. I don't like that. I've forgotten it. Tom, shall I take you again? Huh? Yes, yes. 
You always like this. May I sit beside you, Mrs. Moonlight? I'm a very lucky man, Mrs. Moonlight. And a very, very happy man. Yes, dear. And you're a very happy woman, Mrs. Moonlight. Very happy. I think I've never been so happy in my life as I am now. And I'm certain of this. Mrs. Moonlight, I could never, never be happy with any woman but you. That's what you think, Mr. Moonlight. It's what I know. Sarah, Sarah, I think I'll go to bed now. I'm feeling tired, sleepy. Yes, dear. I'll take him upstairs. So tired, Sarah. So very, very tired. Father. Uh, Peter, get some brandy. Oh, my darling. My darling. Percy, you and Peter get him upstairs. No. Stay here, all of you. He'll want her. I know. Come along, please. Thank you. Thank you, She's been up there with him a long time. Over half an hour. Percy, I'm nervous. Oh, it's all right, my dear. Well, there's nothing to be nervous about, Mother. Why does Father think he knows her? After all, my dear, your father hasn't known anyone for months, and it's just as reasonable that he might think he knows this girl. No, there's something else. But I won't say it. I, I'm afraid. Wait, here's Minnie. Minnie, how is Father? Your father... Your father... Is dead. Minnie. Oh, Minnie. She was with him. He was in her arms. Minnie, who is that girl? She's someone Mr. Moonlight knew a long time ago. Minnie. Come in, dear. Peter, get her a chair. I'm quite all right. All right, thank you. I'm not unhappy. It was really very, very beautiful. It would be wicked to be unhappy. I'm only, only very tired. I wonder why I'm so tired. Please sit down. You'll feel better in a minute. Thank you, Peter. You just said to me, I love you, Mrs. Moonlight, very, very dearly. He just said that. He looked happy, too. Jane. Yes? Give me your hand. I'm so pleased with you, Jane. I've always liked your nice Percy Midley. And you've done well together, haven't you? A nice boy and a nice home. Oh, I'm so tired. You, Mrs. Moonlight, very, very dearly. Jane, do I look happy? Very happy. Are you? Oh, oh, so happy. It's funny to be so tired here in my heart. Perhaps, perhaps. Oh, oh, 
How lovely. Now, Lord, lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. For mine eyes have seen, mine eyes It's all right, Peter. I'm sure she's happy. See how she's smiling. Falls on Act Three of Mrs. Moonlight, starring Janet Gaynor and George Brent. Mr. DeMilt, the moonlight of our play has faded, so suppose we get back to the world of reality. Miss Gaynor, I've heard some whispers about you that I'd like to pin down right now. Well, what are these whispers, Mr. DeMille? Well, they're about painting and... Uh... Oh, I'm sure it was an exaggeration. If you're looking for a hobby, there's George Brent, a gentle pastime called polo. The question was about paint, not ponies. There's really nothing to it. Something around the house always needs paint. Kitchen tables, a lawn chair, a cupboard. A landscape or a still life. I'm afraid my watercolors are pretty amateurish. But the furniture painting, well, now that's quite professional. Mm -hmm. Could George and I persuade you to do a sketch of us, say, with me sitting in a chair and George standing behind with his hand on my shoulder? <laughs> I'd be delighted to. But I'm afraid portraits are beyond me. If you draw a picture of an orange and it doesn't look like an orange, you can always say it's impressionistic. That doesn't go with portraits. At least not when the living originals do the judging. Why hasn't somebody seen one of these pictures? Mm, I keep them locked up. Yeah. But you can look at the lawn chairs I paint at any time. <laughs> I used a special weatherproof paint. We could have used some of that and the rains came. I doubt if there has ever been so much rain in California before. <laughs> <laughs> and photographing rain is a difficult operation, too. It has to be done on a clear day to get enough light. Yes, yes. Well, if it was a cloudy day and looked like rain, we made sunshine scenes indoors on a soundstage. Now, that's not so crazy as it seems if you think it over. Mm. Well, I'll Where's figure it? it out on the way home. <laughs> and I think it's time to leave now. Well, I recognize the gentle hint. Good night, C.B. I hope the man in the moonlight and with his moonlight shine along on clear skies. All of you, I'm sure, will want to join us again a week from tonight when you hear the announcement of our stars and play, which Mr. DeMille brings you in a moment. Assisting in our cast tonight were Janet Young as Minnie, Jane Gilbert as Jane, Ted Osborne as Willie Ragg, Claire Vadera as Edith, James Eagles as Peter, Eric Snowden as Percy Midling, Lou Merrill as Heinrich, Frank Nelson as Bonelli, Jane Morgan as Frau Muller, and Eddie Kane as Ticket Agent. The play, Mrs. Moonlight, was written by Ben W. Levy. Louis Silvers appeared through courtesy of 20th Century Fox Studio, where he directed music for Second Fiddle. Our sponsors, the makers of Lux Flakes, join me in inviting you to be with us again next Monday night when the Lux Radio Theater presents Donna Michi, Joan Bennett, and Claire Trevor in Bordertown. This is Cecil B. DeMille saying good night to you from Hollywood. Mrs. Moonlight, 
From Lux Radio Theater, just a little over two months before the start of World War II in Europe in the summer of 1939. It brings us just about to the end of the big broadcast tonight, but not quite. We've mentioned a couple of times this evening the premiere of The Jazz Singer, nominally the first talking motion picture on this date in 1927. Well, there's another anniversary this month, and that film's star, Al Jolson, gets some of the credit for it. I don't think anyone would argue that Swanee was George Gershwin's greatest compositional achievement, nor Irving Caesar's greatest lyric. But it was, believe it or not, the biggest hit that either of them ever had, surpassing Mr. Gershwin's I Got Rhythm and Mr. Caesar's T for Two. And it premiered in a review called Demitas exactly 100 years ago this month. But it wasn't until Al Jolson sang it and put it into his Broadway show Sinbad that it became a hit. Recorded for Columbia Records, you can see the original label on our Facebook page, January 8th, 1920, here is Al Jolson singing Gershwin and Caesar's Swanee. For co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and audio engineer Douglas Bell, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. been away from you a long time. I never thought I'd miss you so. Somehow I feel your love was real. Near you, I long to be. The birds are singing, it is song time. The banjo strumming soft and low. I know that you yearn for me too. You're calling me Swanee. How I love you, how I love you, my dear old Swanee. I'd give the world to be among the folks in a GIXI, even though my man is waiting for me, praying for me down by the Swanee. The folks up north will.
WAMU is looking for a local artist to design our 2019 holiday card. If you're a visual artist in the Washington region, we want to hear from you. Portfolios will be accepted through October 6th. Visit WAMU.org slash holiday card. Your unwanted car, truck, or boat can transform into a meaningful gift for WAMU. Find out more about vehicle donations at WAMU.org slash cars.